Hey everybody, welcome to Story Kinetics, where we talk about the art of story. I'm Adam Skelter, and today I'm joined by Jay Teo and Todd Lindsley. Jay, how you doing? Doing great, man. Glad to be back. I took a, a couple weeks off from here. <laughs> how are you doing? Doing really good, really good. Uh, well, let's talk about writing. How's, how's the writing coming, Jay? Uh, honestly, it's been pretty slow for me the last couple weeks. I'm not going to lie to you. Adam. <laughs> but you usually do. <laughs> Heaven's sakes, don't lie, Jay. Yeah, I, well, I would never lie to either of you. So I'm, I'm going to keep it truthful. I'm going to tell That's you guys bullshit. straight up that I have not been writing these last couple of weeks. Ow. What's going on? How come? You doing all right? Uh, yeah, no, I'm doing good. Just been focused on puking and pooing. Jeez. Stuff of that matter. No, that was only a couple of days. Other than that, I've, I've been... Uh, I think I've talked about it before. I've been doing Muay Thai pretty regularly, mm -hmm. a few times nice. a week at least, and just trying to be active and, and get myself uh, physically in shape and feeling better. I started some physical therapy on my hip because I have some hip issues as well, and so just just trying to get myself together. So, cool. are, do you have a? Are you tragically hip, or is, is that? Uh huh. <laughs> you, you can cut that one. You can kind of. <laughs> no, keeping it. In. I'm leaving it. I'm leaving it in. <laughs> You gotta stand. You gotta live and die by your jokes, man. Hey, it's my Canadian. <laughs> it's a Canadian joke, eh? Yeah. It's like the uh, Canadian Pearl Jam, tragically hip. Uh, yeah. What about you, Todd? What are you What are you working on? Well, I just had a marathon story um, story uh, meeting yesterday. Yeah. I spent about eight hours in a room with two other writers, um, beating the hell out of each other. But uh, we were able to we we were able to get uh, to with it's a, a production company looking for uh, um yeah they they needed to define more more carefully define their story and actually head back to the story room mm. where they're going to story now is this is this the property that you are you've been developing with the uh, no. tweener thing or is this no this is actually a different property and periodically I'll be called in to uh, consult on on a story uh, this is one of those um, and it 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 went okay uh, we'll see how it goes they're gonna we'll follow up on that now the tween story actually there's not been a lot of movement on that at the moment but we're uh, um, but there has been some changes and, and some really exciting. Uh, I think we're going to go from more of a, a child comedy to a little bit more of a, a, uh, a, a more intense, not quite a drama, but definitely, you know, in that age is definitely a dramatic age. And so we're... we're Go ahead. It'll, it'll just be the background. Yeah? All right. I'll just so, drop my own volume. Okay. So, yeah. So, we'll, we'll see how that's going. Um, the title is being scrubbed, and we're, we're going to look at... Uh, we're going to go a couple different directions. Luckily, we have the time to do that, so... Um, that's cool. But, yeah. Yeah. So, you're not planning on going into production really soon with that one? No, that's no, not... development? No, that's definitely in development right now. Well, okay. If you need anybody you? with boyish charm, let me know. Hey, you know, you are number one on the list. Thank you. Uh, actually, I need to ask you, do you have a reel? Can I? Uh... Uh, <laughs> I, need to, I need to be I'll, able to I'll send you my personal reel. Okay. That's, that's, that's great. But I, no bathroom shots or, you know. 
Oh, yeah, of course not. In your personal <laughs> reel. It's, it's all boudoir in the bedroom. <laughs> I like it. Uh, actually, send that to me, please. Please do. <laughs> It'll be up on Story Kinetics. <laughs> I like it. I like it. It'll be a downloadable do a reel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we should. We should, actually. Uh, um, cool. But yeah, how about you, Adam? How's how's the how's the writing game in your in your in the big time? Good. Uh, we just figured out we're going to be doing. Uh, so, um, as you know, I'm working on Intervention, uh, my new sci-fi uh, novel that's going to be released soon, um, mm-hmm. and we're going to be doing a release party on the podcast. Um, and we recently talked about it. and We're going to be publishing. So, we've been getting a lot of questions and a lot of requests. For the full 24 plot point, eight sequence, uh, four act structure, like a full breakdown. Ooh. Now it was available as a poster. We're gonna we're gonna eventually have the poster out available too, um, but even that was not quite as detailed as, as just the the full diagram. Mm. Um, so uh, we're going to be printing the diagram in the back of the novel. So, oh, perfect! <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. Great. So if, uh, so when you buy intervention, you're actually going to be able to flip to the back, and it'll have the the full diagram. Uh, the 24 plot points, uh, eight sequence, uh, four act structure, uh, and then you'll also I'll also show you like how I outlined my own uh, novel and how it apply how I use the diagram to, to build on the novel. Oh my well, gosh, so. that's great! Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, I, yeah, I've been getting enough requests that people are asking for it, which is nice because we you know yeah. we've we've been getting like uh, quite a few subscribers uh, joining the conversation. And uh, a lot of people are showing a lot of interest in it, so that's that's really good that we're getting this kind of momentum. Right. Um, but yeah, and you know, it's it's nice to, for me personally. I like to have it like in paper, uh, an actual printout of diagrams that I can be using and referencing and stuff. Mm. So um, so that'll be coming out. Intervention. Uh, we don't have the release date yet, but it is going to be coming out in the next, uh, hoping the next two months or so. Definitely, wow, that quickly. Uh, in the summer. Yeah, that's absolutely. Cool. We're really right. close. Yeah, we've we're, we've wrapped up the polish. Uh, uh, we're getting, you know, I'm still like rereading it and editing it and stuff. Sure. Um, but we're going to be, we got the cover all done. We're going to be doing the reveal really soon. And this new edition of the diagram is kind of new, so I'm excited about that. Oh wow! So. Wow, that's exciting. I just, I mean, I remember the the days back when you were just talking about. I mean, I re- remember the days of the screenplay, and all of a sudden yeah. now it's this big novel. My goodness. Okay. You work fast. Yeah. Though. I mean, dang. Yeah. 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 Um, cool. Well, uh, how about we jump into the asshole? Look at the asshole! Uh, okay, today's asshole question. The asshole is when we uh, take questions from listeners uh, and we'll discuss uh, basically screenwriting or writing your novel. Um, today's asshole question is Does my character need an arc? Mm hmm. So is a character arc necessary for every story? Um, now, real quick, let's let's define what a character arc is. Um, Jay, why don't, why don't you give us your, your best estimate on a, on a character arc? Um, character arc is, I guess if I had to put it simply, the change that a character goes through over yeah. the course of a story. Exactly. So, like, mm-hmm. uh, if they grow hair during the movie, exactly. then that's an arc. Yeah, facial hair, head hair. Whatever the case may be, pubic hair. Right. <laughs> so what kind of what kind of arc or what kind of change are we talking about? Um, I mean, it could be positive change, growth for a character, or it could mm-hmm. be you know something that they go through that negatively affects them as well. 
Yeah. Um, usually it's a, some sort of learning experience one yeah. way or another. Cool. Yeah. The way, the way I look at it, Adam, is um, we look at uh, when we're developing a character, one of the questions we ask is what is their implicit need and what is their explicit need? And there, when we see a character arc, it seems to be that the explicit and the implicit need um, are somehow either met or understood, and that it's it changes their behavior. And we see an example. Usually, we'll see an example of the changed behavior, and that's what I. So, would are you saying that that it's the explicit and the implicit that are in conflict with each other? Or no, no, um, I don't think that. Me. Well, the implicit and the explicit. Let's let's be specific. That the implicit um, is not necessarily something that the the character is conscious of, and the explicit is something that more the audience is conscious of. They're they're kind of like, oh, this guy's kind of a jerk, or Luke Skywalker's kind of a whiner, or you know, these we we see the the explicit, the out outer shell of this character. Um, and we see them as being uh, immature, or, or, or you know, a lot of times we can we can use that to kind of show the Achilles heel. Um, so when we are when we're having a character arc, what we're doing is we're kind of answering um, the question to what is it that they needed, what what is it that the universe believed that they needed, which is generally the implicit need, mm-hmm. um, and then the explicit need being. Um, Answered in the dramatic question, usually there, uh, in well, actually in the in the climax where the dramatic question is answered, usually yeah. the, the explicit need is also answered in that in that moment. It's the moment where uh, we see an action, for instance, uh, in as good as it gets. Uh, we didn't actually see it; we get told it, but and so in that way, it's kind of a Deus ex machina, but. Um, what it is is Jack Nicholson's character tells her, "When I met you, I started taking my pills again, you know." Mm. And uh, although I lowered my voice, that is not my Jack Nicholson impression. I just want to make that clear. <laughs> um, Are you going to give us a Jack Nicholson? No, I am not. I do not do impressions. <laughs> I am terrible at them. That's not uh, true. I've heard some great oh, ones from you. Well. Thank you, but um, but Jack Nicholson, yeah, that that character basically, we he confesses and is is honest with uh, what's her name. Uh, but anyway, she he he admits that uh, I didn't like taking my pills, but as soon as I met you, um, I decided to start taking my pills. And she says, "Oh," and he says, and then he goes further and says. Basically, he says, let, "Let me make this clear. You want you make me want to be a better man, and that is his overarching. That that is when he finally allows himself to be vulnerable mm-hmm. and uh, um, have a relation, an honest relationship with her. And he's not pushing her off. Yeah. So let me. I, I want a little more clarification on explicit okay. versus implicit. So this is like the need that the audience thinks the character needs to go through." Yeah, the explicit is, is going to be the, what the audience thinks that. I mean, it's it's one of the uh, Frank Danielle's devices that he he talks about is um, that the audience kind of needs to have a a somewhat superior view because they need to kind of believe that they know what's going to happen next. Hmm. However, they've also got to be interested in it. They've got to see. Yeah. Well, is it going to happen? I think I know what's going to happen next. Hopefully, that's what. I'm team this, you know, it's like, yeah, 
literally, um, yeah, so when uh, it, it's kind of part of playing with the visceral um, storytelling, and, and, and at a certain point, actually, the different stages of storytelling, the vicarious and the, um, and the visceral, um, when you've gotten to the visceral, you're not even asking, you're not even... Um, you're not even anticipating what's going to happen next. You're just experiencing it in your own mind. It's very much like when Rocky, when uh, Rocky was in theaters, and you would see men, you know, bobbing and weaving in their seats because mm-hmm. uh, because they were there, they were in the moment at the time. Yeah. So, but yeah, no, and so with the explicit need. Um, it's it's something that the audience kind of anticipates. Yeah, he's gonna have to figure this out. Yeah. It's um. But however, I would. Can I answer that question? Or are we? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. My and I remember having this conversation with you while a while back, saying, "Do we need a character arc?" And my answer is, "Ask Larry David." Yeah. Yeah. That's because a great point. I mean, if you watch Curb Your Enthusiasm, how many character arcs does Larry David go through? How many character arcs does Jerry Seinfeld go through in, in the movie in the TV show Seinfeld? Yeah. They're always butting up against any kind of emotional uh, progress or any yeah. kind of developmental progress. They're 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 just not that is not them. You know they yeah. do not arc. <laughs> and so my suggestion is no, you do not have to have a character arc. However, emotionally. It allows the audience to hope for something, hope that they finally get it, hope that they finally understand what you believe as an audience you understand, or maybe that. I also think that this is one of the reasons why people get lost in the third act. They'll be watching this third act where they'll see, oh, okay, obviously this flaw in this character is because um, he's a whiner, uh, Luke Skywalker. And then by the third act, you're kind of going, oh, they never fixed that. Well, what's up with this movie? You know what I mean? It's like in the third act, you you disagree with what the what the uh, director or the writer decided to say about the the needs of the character, and so it's like yeah. it's like yeah, I really like the beginning, but the end it, it didn't work for me. So okay. yeah, I, yeah, yeah. So I, I want to point out one very important dimension. Both mm-hmm. of you guys are talking about change and transformation and stuff, but one thing uh, that a character that a character arc needs uh, it's the moral dimension uh, so a character arc is about a moral transformation that the character goes through it's not necessarily that they learn a new skill or you know they they change um, some other external aspect we're mainly talking about their internal value system and how it adapts to uh, some sort of new world or new conflict and it's the conflict that forces them to change um, and I would agree with you. Like, Larry David's a perfect example. Part of the reason we watch him, uh, like, Curb Your Enthusiasm, is because of his, like, he has his own value system. He has his own moral value system. And it's very, like, explicit. And he's, uh, which is what I love about him, is he's constantly showing how much of an asshole he is or how much he doesn't <laughs> give a shit about other people. And that's what I love about it. It's like, if he transformed and learned his lesson. So so part of the implicit thing is um, part of the, w- when you have a character arc, especially if you're presenting a character arc that you consider to be a sacred value or something that you think is a good, healthy thing, then the the unconscious suggestion of that 
is that your story is trying to teach a lesson. And it's part of the reason why Curb Your Enthusiasm works so well is that it is constantly subverting this idea that Larry can teach you anything. He's like, I'm not here to teach you. I'm here to fuck with shit. And that's like, that's why it's good. That's why it's funny. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in, in my video about uh, the moral mosaic, it basically says that the best way to actually engage moral values is to show uh, characters with powerful, conflicting moral values uh, coming up against each other, conflicting with each other, wanting different things or wanting the same thing and competing with each other. Then it becomes... Uh, then we actually get to expose them in kind of like a dialectic, like we talked about in the Hail Caesar episode. But it, it becomes opposing views in conflict with each other, revealing what their value system is. And then we get to make up our own minds about it. And that's that's what I think about really sophisticated storytelling. So character arcs tend to kind of... The thing I'm always suspicious of with a character arc is that it feels patronizing. It tends to feel like... We're going to learn a lesson. We're going to teach you <laughs> how to feel, how to be. And when we're watching, uh, it, I'm seeing it. I've been watching a lot of Netflix shows lately, and I'm just seeing character after character <laughs> is they're going to teach you what the right way to handle this social situation. And it's incredibly patronizing and self-righteous and boring. Um, anytime the character... So two ways of looking at it, looking at it is a character arc changes because they have some sort of Achilles heel and then they transform and become a better person or, or adapt to their situation, which is why I try and be a little bit morally ambiguous about it. I don't make the judgment like Godfather. People say it's a negative arc. It's not a negative arc. Michael Corleone just adapted to a new situation that he hadn't experienced before. And that's what mm. story is mm -hmm. all about. It's not, and they don't take a position of this is the right thing. They take a position of this is what this person had to go through, and how would you feel? And the the question is, is you know, how would you feel having to go through these kinds of conflicts? Um, so yeah, and again, there's you know, there's uh, the lack of the moral uh, transformation or a lack of a, a character arc. But then there's like characters, you know, there's Larry David. There's also characters like. Um, uh, oh, like uh, James Bond. Mm, or yeah. a, And a lot of television tends to be built on characters who don't transform. They don't change. In fact, before the common wisdom was you got to create characters that are constantly in this kind of conflict. Like everybody loves Raymond. He's frozen in this conflict between pleasing his mother and pleasing his wife. And that conflict will never be resolved. And every single episode in one way or another is a different way that he's going to be thrown in the middle of this conflict between his mother and his wife, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, that's why you got to be clever as writers because you, you, you need to come up with new ways of exploring that. Um, but yeah, ultimately character arcs are about moral transformation. And um, I think it, isn't that just another layer to the arrested development legacy is that everyone was built. Everyone in that show was basically, completely stunted yeah um, yeah they, like literally it's it's moral it's yeah it's a moral arrested development absolutely yeah. <laughs> okay that that kind of touches on character arcs a little bit of course we're going to spend whole episodes actually several episodes talking about character arcs and how the character arcs work and um how we can deconstruct it today we're actually going to be talking about character arcs um and how it applies to the narrative and the plot um so we'll we'll get into hey. that more Go ahead. Adam, real quick, I just wanted to also include a um, 
a uh, a warning as far as you know it's very easy to say oh we'll ask larry david but at the same time um if you're not paying attention to the character's progression to po a possible change um especially early on in in your your writing you're 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 gonna want to do that you're gonna want to pay attention to that and uh, it's not going to be a reason to not write a story um, but you're going to want to pay attention to it regardless. Okay. So the warning is kind of a rule. It's a, it's a rule that you want to follow, um, until you feel strongly enough that you don't have to follow it anymore. You've, you've, that you've kind of succumbed to the, the reality of it. And then you're, I don't know if I agree with change. that. Um, okay. Just because I, I know some writers that they don't think in terms of character transformation. They, okay. especially comedians, like I see a lot of comedians, sure. they're really funny and they're more interested in irony and the joke and the gag. Or, and what's mm -hmm. funny to them about the character is that they never learn, they never transform. You know, absolutely. And you uh, know, does Bugs the jerk Bunny never transform? Changes. Yeah, exactly. No, no, absolutely not. So I, but I don't know. I'm also I, saying I, that I'm right. also saying it's a very sophisticated way of telling a story, too. Yeah, I don't it think is. It's I don't think that, yeah. Uh, that's and that is what I'm suggesting is that maybe you might not want to try right out the gate to do something like that. It's pretty ambitious. You're saying but you disagree. You're saying that you people writers should not try to write a character. No, no, no. What I'm saying is, I mean, you can do it, but what I'm saying is that generally you'll you'll want to pay attention to the character's emotional progression. Mm -hmm. um, I I believe. That that's what you'll you'll need to do. However, obviously people disagree. I I have a tendency to be very character driven in in all of my stories. Yeah, that's and true. I'm not saying that they all have to be um, they all have to have an art because they don't. But ultimately, um, if you're not if you're not having that, because also that that is what keeps the audience engaged is will they won't they um, are they going to eventually. Uh, give in to that uh, uh, that Achilles heel? Are they going to give in to that um, that flaw that they've been been living with? Yeah. Um, and ultimately, yeah, I I would suggest that that is definitely something that's uh, kind of an advanced move. Larry David was able to do it because he's dedicated his life to comedy, and he was writing comedy for years and years and years before he ever got on the Seinfeld show and you know bugs bunny and all these other things these are all in the pantheon of of great comedy um and i'm just saying that you may want to pay attention to it it's it's an interesting thing although i do have a story where i was talking with a film critic who was a young um uh, actually high school student and uh and we were talking about the movie uh kong versus uh or no kong or was it Kong? Uh, Kong Godzilla Island? versus Kong? No, 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 Kong. It's the island movie, Skull Islander. Oh, Skull Island. Island, yeah, yeah, the Skull Island movie. So I asked him. I said, "Well, what did you think of what did you think of Kong?" And he said, "I didn't like it." And I said, "Why?" And he says, "There was no character art, and it's 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 cute, um, but I'm not going to not like a movie just because there's no character art." You know, obviously, that's I mean, a great I'm, point. Yeah, I've actually heard that note from uh, from readers, from producers. Yeah. They'll sit there and read a script that clearly works, that doesn't have a character arc, 
and they'll say uh, this doesn't have enough of a character arc, and that'll be their excuse for for saying that it's not a very good movie or it's not a good script, and that's ridiculous. Yeah. You do not need a character arc if the story works. A character arc is a tool yeah. where you explore the trans the moral transformation of a character, and if your story is not about that transformation, uh, then you don't have the obligation to to try and force feed some sort of uh, bullshit in there. I, I hate that when people yeah. are saying like you you need to put a character arc in there or it's not a good character. That's not true. Some stories are about their lack of transformation. Yeah, what was the name of this student, Todd? Let's call him. Yeah, out. what's his name? Yeah, <laughs> give me his number. We got to talk to him. Uh, he has a podcast out of Dallas. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> and this was years ago, so he's probably in college now. <laughs> um, yeah. So we're going to add him. <laughs> anyway, but no, yeah. Um, the uh, it, it's kind of like the likable note. Oh, this character's not likable. Yeah, it's exactly. Like the worst note exactly. in the world. It's everybody is. Yeah, every yeah. I, I don't like this trend that everyone's saying like, well, it needs to have a character arc. I, I think you're ultimately yeah. cheating your story instincts by f- trying to force feed or, or wedge a character arc in there when it does call for right. it. That said, doing it well is also very difficult because um, sure. it needs to, uh, yeah, it, the story needs to work. But a character arc is not the determination of whether it works or not. Absolutely. Cool. All right. Let's move on to uh, Story Bites. Uh, story Bites, we're going to talk about the low point today. All right. So the low point is plot point 18. Um, and basically... The reason why you want to have the low point is because you want to show uh, the the character that has lost all, like lost everything. And this this actually ties into character arc. Um, when we're tracking the emotions, every single scene is about the character experiencing uh, an emotional change, an emotional change, or that changes, you know, for the better or for the worse. And you don't want to have constant up and down because that just creates melodrama. But you do want to have gradual transitions and then quick dramatic moments. Like you should have moments that punch people in the gut. You should have moments that you're just like biting your nails, wondering what's going to happen. Moonlight's a great example where you feel like there's this constant tension. Like that that's my favorite thing about the movie is it feels like there's from the very beginning all the way to the end, I was constantly worried about what was about to happen next. It was so so beautifully directed, really well written. That's one of my um, favorite movies. Right? Yeah, it's so beautifully done. I, I think we should do an episode where we do Moonlight. It's so gorgeous. I'll we'll um, have to because I haven't seen it. Oh. Oh. Yeah. yeah, it's really good. It's really I good. I have children, I just, so I, I, yeah, every time I go to the movies, it's generally something they're going to be serviced with. Yeah. As opposed to me. Yeah. Um, cool. So the low point is that moment where the character, uh, they're pursuing a uh, a an external drive or sorry they're pursuing pursuing an external objective they're going after a goal and everything they're doing has failed um all of their strategies have completely made them fall on their face and the the real reason why you want to have this generally speaking is to service that character arc it's to force them to reevaluate their value system and it's not until they lose all other opportunity. Now, these are stories, generally, this is when we're talking about stories about characters who desperately need or want something so badly that they're willing to sacrifice almost anything to get it. And the purpose of story is to get us to wonder, 
to ask ourselves how important is uh, this objective to this character? Every single uh, dramatic question uh, is framed in such a way to get you to say, are you willing to put your life at risk, to, to risk everything in order to get this objective? And then the climax answers that. But before we can get to that climax, we need to be driven to that ultimate sacrifice, which is pushing us to a low point. And that low point uh, forces us to feel like there is no chance. Now, when we're dealing with a character arc, that low point, the, sur the, the function of the low point is to get us to uh, get the character to reevaluate their value system and say, I need to change. This obviously isn't working. What can I do to change? And usually that's when they address their Achilles heel and they, they're looking directly at their false beliefs that they've been operating from and they say, I need to change this. And all of a sudden, once they change their perspective, they suddenly see a new path. And that's what jettisons us into the fourth act. But that low point should be devastating. And if it's not devastating, uh, then it, it's often an indication of, uh, of where we can uh, try and get more of a character investment. And the stakes are directly connected to that low, to that low point. Like when we did seven a couple weeks ago. Like that low mm -hmm. point, most of the movie was actually pretty even keel emotionally. It was kind of a, uh, a melancholical movie. Every yeah. all the characters were seemed kind of they, they they felt good about making progress when they did make progress and finding the killer. But most of the movie was kind of this dark, heavy weighted feeling. And then at the very end, it just dropped down into hell. And it's so mm -hmm. disturbing because of that it's so effective because of that. Uh, yeah. So that's a, that's one of those rare cases where the where the climax is the low point. Um, generally speaking, the function of the low point is to get the character to look inward, change their value system, and then go after that climax. And it's not until they go after that system, or they not until they they change their their inner values that they are able to actually achieve their goal. Um, so I thought what we would do is look at a few different movies and uh, see if we can identify the low point in that. Sound good? Mm. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Uh, first movie, uh, Back to the Future. This is a great like, classic structure. And, okay. So, it, it, Marty McFly is our protagonist. His dramatic question is, will he... Um, uh, Actually, it happens after he accidentally intervenes with his father's, with his father peeping. And so, will he get his father and his mother together? Okay, so, his real objective—that—that's that, actually only one step in him getting back to the future. The dramatic question is: Will he get back to the future? Oh, will he return to the future? Right. Okay, so okay, so yeah. yeah then so him getting his parents back together is one step that he needs to do in order to re to return that. To, to get back to the future. So it must be when he was um, disappearing in the, on stage. Was that... I mean, because that was his, further, his point where he was like, that's it, he's, he's disappearing. Mom and Dad aren't getting together. Perfect. Why is that the low point? Uh, because ultimately, um, you know, Biff is in the car with his mom. Um, the low point is that there's nothing else he can do. He can't fight anymore. 
it's like it's up to George now. Yeah, it, that's, really what's interesting of, about Back to the Future is it actually shows that the the character who has the most profound change is actually George. Marty yeah. doesn't have much of a transformation, much of a True. moral transformation. If anything, all he learns is some appreciation of what his father might have dealt with, but then he becomes the hero to his father, which is a little narcissistic when you think about it. Yeah, <laughs> He's like, come here, Dad, I'm going to show you how to be a cool guy. You know, If I met you in high school, I would be the cool guy. Which is like, eh, go fuck off. Yeah. Um, but yes, you're right. That moment where he's disappearing, all is lost. Um, this is an example where he doesn't transform very much. Um, but it definitely is the low point because he is the furthest away from uh, achieving his goal. And it's all in the hands of George being brave enough to take that step. So, cool. Okay. Um, her. Ooh. This one's for you, Jay. Mm. Um, it's when uh, Scarlett Johansson kicks rocks. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it's, it's, it's when she uh, leaves to her new AI convent. Interesting. So um, I was looking in the comments in the uh, YouTube's, uh, and so we already covered. Um, this uh, her a few weeks ago and we've gotten some really interesting responses from it and somebody pointed out the fact that they they were like well the the real low point would actually be the moment where he discovers that she's seeing 641 other people that's got to be painful yeah but at the same time uh, so my rebuttal to that would be is it worse for him to find out that she's with other people or is it worse for him to lose her altogether and especially in, in relation to the dramatic question. What's the dramatic question again for her? Um, can he uh, carry on a relationship with an AI? Yeah, good. That's right. Yeah. Because yeah. so the answer was that, yes, he, he could. Yeah. Like they had a, a, a genuine relationship with him. So the low point, oh, geez. Actually, if that's the case, then maybe they're right. Because he's thinking a relationship is between two two, two people. Mm. You know what I mean? Like he's yeah, thinking he's having an, a genuine interchange with one participant, and she ends up having relationships with multiple people. And when he finds that out, that's pretty rough. I mean, I think either one kind of work, but yeah i i do think it's the moment where he loses her that is definitely the low point that's that's where it's it's shot like the low point it has that deep melancholy for him and it's also what drives him to transform it's what causes him yeah. to look inward and say like mm. i need to be okay with my ex-wife and and to write that letter basically saying i understand i wasn't everything you needed and uh and i'm here for you we'll always be friends right but genuinely meaning it that that was the low point that propelled him to be able to mm, okay. uh, yeah. to achieve it. Um, cool. Okay. Ghostbusters. The original one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, let's see. Let's, the, the dramatic question is will they will the Ghostbusters will they bust some ghosts? Will mm -hmm. they bust some ghosts? Now, there's been some controversy over the Ghostbusters. 
mm. as far as their story structure is concerned. Mm, uh, but let's. Well, I know that there was an article came out recently talking about how. Um, oh man, what was it? There was a critic that was talking about how Ghostbusters is about nothing. And uh, yeah, that's what that's what it was. They said that Ghostbusters is about nothing, and I'm like, oh, how about? What was their point? Nothing. <laughs> I mean, technically, it's um, not fair for just to present it as like you know, this is somebody's opinion, and then not let them defend it. But uh, yeah, what, what's what's their position that it's about nothing? You know, I don't remember. I think I think that they were talking about how, as far as theme was concerned, as far as, um, oh, man, you know, I would much rather them represent their own work, to be honest, because mm-hmm. I completely disagree with it. Yeah. Because there's so many great polarities there. There's so many. Um, there's stakes. There's theme. There's, you know, the, the. Uh, I mean, they were basically the plumber's version of scientists. You know, they were the everyman versus the elite. And you so, know, what would you the say the low point is? For the low point, jeez. Um, Does it have one? It. Well, I wouldn't say that there's much of a character arc, so I would suggest that maybe they're they weren't thrust into um, dealing with internal torment. Uh, but there was definitely a low point. So the dramatic question is: Will they save New York the from? Yeah, will they save New York the streams, from the ghost? Yeah. yeah. Will they save New York That's, from? Yeah, it's got to be. That's the furthest away from their goal is, is oh crap, we've got to do something we've said we can't do. We're not supposed I would to. argue that that's in the climax. That's actually, that is the climax okay. of the movie, is them crossing the streams. Um, it, do they lose Dana? Um, so what, what is the moment when they are furthest from being able to save the city? When they're restrained from saving oh, the city? Oh, when they're shut down! Yes, exactly. When they're shut down. And then- they release all the ghosts... They spread yeah. out through all of New York. They shut everything Absolutely. down, and the Ghostbusters are arrested. Mm-hmm. So that's that's yeah. a really good example of a low point where it's like, well, everything's fucked now. You could also call it the everything's fucked plot point. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, because because from that moment on, there's like the, uh, there's nothing they can do. Like they literally just tied their hands, threw them in jail. Now they're stuck. Mm. So all of the stakes are at their highest. So saving New York City, saving the world now is on their shoulders and they took away their one tool that they could to to mm-hmm. solve the problem. Okay. So that's that's a good example. You're right. We don't have a huge character arc, you know. This mm-hmm. it's largely Peter Venkman uh and their relationship with his with his buddies, but uh even that is, you know, uh and then on top of that during that sequence is when um Dana's turned into a dog. <laughs> there is no Dana, only Zool. There is no Dana, only Zool. Cool. Okay. Uh, Shaun of the Dead. <gasps> when he when mom dies or when mom gets zombied. That's got to be. Jay gets zombied. Huh? Jay, Jay, what do you think? Uh, I mean, that's sounding right. It's been a while since I've seen that movie. If I'm going to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, I don't remember what happens around. So the dramatic question is: Is will he uh, protect Protect all of his friends and family through the zombie 
thing. Mm -hmm. And the ultimate thing is like he is unable to choose in many ways, it's every everybody loves Raymond during a zombie apocalypse. He's unable to choose between his girlfriend and his mom, and yeah. he's actually ends up alienating both of them for uh, uh, up to that point. And then slowly, you know, this whole uh, drama is about how he learns to find that balance. Um, but that moment where he has to shoot his own mother in the face, ah. like that's yeah, that's definitely the low point. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Such yeah. a great level, by the way. But that's yeah. what gives him the strength and the character for him to say goodbye to his best friend and uh, connect with his girlfriend, which is it's definitely a – yeah. So it's, <laughs> it's a good low point. Yeah. It's really brutal. Um, let's see. How about Jaws? Jaws! Jay? Jay. We're going to need a bigger boat. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, man. You always shoot. Is that the moment? I is it the moment? I, I haven't seen that movie in at least When their boat years. gets chewed up. Really? Yeah, really. That's the, that's the climax. Um, yeah. Okay. The Actually, climax is when they blew the shark up. When they blew the shark up. Yeah, when they blew it Yeah, but that's I mean that's part of the climactic moment where there are sure. they're all working together. Absolutely. Yeah, you're right. Uh Parasite. Parasite, Parasite, yeah. What's um, the low point? I don't remember that right now. Is well, that just be real the, quick, the what's dinner? the climax? The climax of Parasite? Yeah. yeah. I think right now I'm having trouble distinguishing the two because one of them's got to be the, the the birthday party, where everybody dies, where <laughs> his dad stabs. Well, wouldn't wouldn't that be the climax? Wouldn't that be the answer to the dramatic question? I guess so. Yeah, I guess that is the climax. Yeah. Um, so what's the moment with, that with forces? The uh, that's their apartment getting flooded. Cool. Uh, so that's the low point. The, the whole point of the low point is to create an emotional arc. You want to give us the biggest highs and the lowest lows, and the low point gives us those low lows. Like it, it gives us the feeling that all is lost, and that's what raises the stakes. That's what reminds us, like, if we lose this, then it's all for naught, and then it's heartbreaking. And if we're emotionally invested in the story, if we care about the characters then the low point is that moment where you feel just devastated. And if the credits rolled at the low point, it's a tragedy. Okay? Mm. Cool. Um, all right, let's jump into vivisection. You want a vivisection. Today for the vivisection, we're going to be doing uh, Eastern Promises. Uh, Stephen mm -hmm. Knight, uh, David Cronenberg. Um, fascinating movie. <laughs> uh, Todd, do you want to do you want to do the recap for us? Yeah, a, uh, a teenager who dies during childbirth leaves clues in her journal that could be could tie her child, the, her, her child, the child that she was uh, impregnated with, to rape involving a violent Russian family. I got a little Directed lost by, in there. Give give that to me okay. again. <laughs> a teenager. Okay. A teenager who dies during childbirth leaves clues in her journal that could tie her child to a rape involving a violent Russian mob family. Okay. Where'd you get that log line? 
from IMDb. Oh, that's IMDb. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, directed by David Cronenberg, written by Stephen Knight, starring Naomi Watts, Viggo Mortensen, Armin Mueller-Stahl. And uh, let's see, it was a $50 million budget uh, domestically. It made about $17 million and internationally about 56 total. Wow, really? Yeah. $17 million? Uh, I thought it was a bigger film than that. I, rem- I remember, you know, uh, History of Violence mm-hmm. um, seemed to be, to hit really hard, hit the market really hard. But this seems to be kind of a sleeper. Like, not something they were necessarily that big into, you know? Like, not... Yeah, I I mean, I really liked it. I remember watching it and kind of yeah. being super into it. I mean, I loved A History of Violence. Um, mm-hmm. and it, it, you know, I love David Cronenberg, Videodrome. And then yeah. um, Stephen Knight is just a fantastic storyteller. He's a really, really good writer. Um, yeah, he's creator of Peaky Blinders. and Yeah. yeah. He's, yeah. Did you know he also created uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Did he? Yep, he was He's the creator for that. Yeah, <laughs> I that, didn't. That one surprised that, no. me. Yeah, that was interesting. But um, and then yeah. on top of that, uh, they recently announced at well, recently like a year ago, they announced that they are going to be doing Eastern Promises too. What? Oh, really? Yeah, <laughs> they're well, going to be doing. A sequel. I mean, I think. I mean, there might be more stories to tell in that universe. I think. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. In fact, in many ways, you could argue that Eastern Promises really is just one big one act. Yeah, well, you know, because it's okay. all about him, you know, uh, Viggo Mortensen becoming a mob boss who's an informant, becoming a vor. Whoa, yeah. whoa, whoa! Spoilers. <laughs> yeah. If you're watching this, it's spoiled. It's already spoiled. Mm-hmm. Uh, cool, very cool. Wow, so a fifty million dollar budget, which I'm surprised. Yeah. It did not look like a fifty million dollar movie. It was pretty intimate. I mean, it was beautifully shot. It was very well. Um, I, I know that Cronenberg tends to like the he just lets the camera kind of let be still and let uh, let the performances kind of speak for themselves. But mm-hmm. um, you know, and I I think that also he uh, what I thought was really interesting about the way he shot London was you know we didn't we had moments where I was like man that kind of looks Russian to me. There were several several times where the art direction suggested that they were making Russia in London. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting, but especially I, when we dive into the themes. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Interesting. Okay, well thanks thanks for that recap. I was I'm surprised. I I didn't realize it was that expensive and I didn't realize that it didn't make any money. And yet it's it's a very popular movie now. Like uh mm-hmm. Well, here, here's my next catch line. It's uh, Vigo ain't cheap. Vigo ain't cheap. <laughs> I want a T-shirt that says Vigo ain't cheap. I guess not. I mean, he's no, I amazing. Not. Apparently, yeah, he's Vigo's not going to be. He's not going to be in the sequel. Oh, um, which you know, it's like why you know the reason to watch this movie is to watch Viggo Mortensen's uh, performance. His mm-hmm. his his commitment to that character and all the preparation and research was just absolutely phenomenal. Um, cool, thanks, Todd. Uh, let's jump into structure and see if we can kind of identify the structure, identify the landmarks, 
and uh, see if we can use that as a tool to dive into what this story is really about. Story structure. So when we're looking at the structure, we're looking at about a, uh, it's a, an hour and 35 minutes from beginning to credits. Um, and so we've got all these scenes and we want to start kind of giving it some structure. Now, from the beginning, Stephen Knight is notoriously anti three act structure. Uh, he does not like acts. Uh, he does. He, he, he is self-described as very resistant, very reluctant uh, to conform to the Hollywood uh, uh, dramatic structure mm. or what he regards as a Hollywood dramatic structure. Um, okay. And yet he, he says when you're, you know, when you're working with the producers, when you're working with a, a Hollywood made film, you do need to conform to those Hollywood uh, plot points. Or those, you know, those act structures. Now, um, you know, and um, there's a great interview where he's where he's talking in. Oh, where is it? Anyway, there's a really good interview where he's talking about his whole process and his whole method. And uh, he, he does say that, you know, ultimately, when you're working with the producers, you do need to get their act structure down. But he says he does it. He hates he does it dragging his feet the entire way. Um, mm -hmm. And what's interesting is um that that becomes pretty clear as soon as you start to try and deconstruct this movie. Um, so let's talk about that. So the so the first thing when we're when we're deconstructing a movie is we want to identify the dramatic question, and the dramatic question, of course, is will the protagonist achieve X? Okay. So in this story, what is the dramatic question for Eastern Promises, Jay? Um, I would say that it's will. Forgive me, I forget Naomi Watts' character's name. Anna. 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 Will Anna reunite the baby with her family? Good. Okay. Good. I like that. I actually really like that. Um, I might phrase it a little bit to the one I came up with was about the same. Will Anna find a safe, find a home for the baby or mm -hmm. a safe home for the baby? Um, but I think reunite. Yeah, that is the objective. Her objective is to reunite the yeah. baby with her family. Yeah, that's good. Very good. Uh, and then the climax, of course, is the answer to the dramatic question. Um, so what is the climax? She doesn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a tragedy. What you're saying is this is a tragedy. Uh, not exactly. Not exactly. So interestingly, like a, a couple weeks ago, Todd pointed out that Frank Danielle had said that uh, if the answer to the dramatic question is in the negative, then the movie is a tragedy. Is that true in this case? I don't think so. I think it kind of has a happy ending. Uh, and it ends up taking I, I, in the child. If, if the dramatic question is, will she give it a safe home? Then it is not a tragedy because the child ends up That's in a true. safe home. Cool. I guess, I guess it is how you yeah. phrase it then. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, yeah the, the emotional takeaway is, yay, you know, the good people won. <laughs> and the bad people lost. This is a very fragmented film, because if you look at how much time they spend with Viggo Mortensen and his, his uh, goals, mm -hmm. you could suggest that there were two protagonists, and they were definitely not working in concert with each yeah. other. But they I definitely totally had very totally. specific goals. Yeah, for which sure. is so, very interesting. But, but I, agree. I wouldn't say fragmented, the thread, but definitely split. 
Well, the thread that ties it all together is the fate of the baby, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, absolutely, for sure. Um, and it and it begins with Naomi Watts's character with Anna trying to uh, find a safe home for the baby. Mm-hmm. You know, and the, the first the first obvious way, her first responsibility is to find the people that the baby belongs to, right? So, right. You know, mm-hmm. the, and and if if she if the baby has surviving relatives who are willing to take the child, that's who it belongs to. It belongs to family first. Which she and does then, course, actually find the family. She does she does get the address of the of the family in what uh, Nikol, Nikolai says is not a very pleasant place for a child to grow up. But right. the, yeah. the address is there, so she does achieve that objective as well. However, it's not. Um, that is not the overall objective, or that's not the. So overall let's go to the culmination. Let's, let's go back to this question about um, about the protagonist, because you're right. Uh-huh. This is first we see Anna. We actually learn a little bit about Anna's life that she uh, recently went through a breakup, and she had a miscarriage, and that strongly informs her choices uh, that she's going through. Um, mm-hmm. So, but and yet, Viggo Mortensen probably gets more screen time than her. Mm-hmm. So, what is Viggo yeah, Mortensen's absolutely. dramatic question? If he if he is also a protagonist, what's his dramatic question? Will Viggo Mortensen will win? will he successfully um, infiltrate this violent family, this mob, and um, yeah, will he successfully infiltrate the? Yeah, the I think mob? infiltration is is his goal. Yeah, which is interesting because we actually don't learn that until an hour and 20 minutes into it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. We don't even know that that's what his objective is until an hour and 20 minutes into it. So <laughs> we know that he's different than them. Um, yeah, they and treat him has... a bit like a, like a new recruit, an outsider. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he ascends very quickly, um, obviously, because um, he, he ascends very quickly and it's... There's a specific reason why he does. Um, he's a patsy. Because of but, his tattoos. Yeah. But he, he ascends quickly because he's he's set up. But uh, the his objective is definitely um, is definitely met regardless. You know what? Let me let me correct that. It's an hour and twenty five minutes. So ten minutes before the credits roll that we finally learn that he's an undercover uh, FSB. So technically, we don't realize his dramatic question until all the way at the end of the movie. Yeah, mm-hmm. what his yeah. what his actual intentions are. Right. So yeah. that's that's a very unconventional way to structure it. Yeah, um, a very slow reveal for his character. Yeah, literally at the end of the and it, it's <laughs> not. Slow and reveal. the thing of it is, it's not even presented as a twist. I remember watching mm-hmm. it the first time. I was like, "Oh, did I did I miss something?" So. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we've got the dramatic question, which is, you know, the, the first thing is, is, you know, is this baby going to find a safe home? Now, the truth of it is the dramatic question becomes, uh, will this baby put this mob boss away? Or will mm-hmm. Anna do what she needs to to get the mob boss put away? Because that's where the stakes are. Mm-hmm. Um, or will this mob boss, you know, murder her and her family? Um, okay, so... From there, we want to look at the impetus, and the impetus is just the presentation of the problem that needs to be solved, whether it's a threat or an opportunity. 
what is the impetus in this story? Uh, I saw the impetus as... Uh, I'm so sorry, I'm blanking on all the names right now, so let me pull it up. Anna? But I, I saw the impetus as Semyon offering to translate the diary. Okay. Wouldn't that be more the... the uh... Well, okay. Well, why is that the impetus? Uh, I felt it was an impetus because that's when she finally gets a solid connection with the family responsible for the death of mm-hmm. the, the teenage girl. And okay. that's also when he realizes that he has a problem for his family that he has yeah. to uh, sort out. Okay. When, you could argue that that is the impetus for Semyon because that's the first time the problem is presented to him. Mm-hmm. Because once he learns that- about the journal... Let me just make this point. Once he once he learns about the journal, that's when he has a problem to solve. So I was before that, that, yeah, I see what you're not, saying. It's not his problem. Yeah, Todd, okay. what, what's your thought on that? I was just saying that the impetus for all of it is the death of Tatiana. That she when she when she dies, that's when the Pandora's box opens, mm-hmm. and the journal goes in, into play, and and then she has. Um, I would take it just one one step further. It's it's the same. It's almost the same moment, but it is the death of Tatiana, and the mm-hmm. and the child that survives, the baby that survives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I'm uh, so, with that. Um, and the reason is is because um, the Tatiana dying, uh, she pretty much died from an overdose, right? And then um, her body was too weak from drugs. To survive, well, she, and then they they were able to save the baby. Did she die from an overdose, or did she die from hemorrhaging from a from labor? That's a good question. I had a, I had thought it there was um that there was overdosing, but you're right. It starts with her bleeding, like her water break, breaking, and then yeah. she's in a pool of blood. Yeah, that's yeah. a really good point. Um, so, but the 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 point of that's the ending of the scene is that that moment where they say call it. And she says the time of death is at what twelve twenty or twenty three twenty four, and the mm-hmm. time of birth is at twenty three twenty five, you know, or whatever yeah. the numbers are. But it's like literally one minute from one minute to the next, the mother dies and the child is born. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a powerful uh, metaphoric moment too, as well. Yeah, um, which the writer was a little all too aware of uh, when, <laughs> when they were writing the dialogue. We'll talk about that a little bit, right? Um, but yeah. Definitely, because now it's the baby surviving is the problem they need to solve. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's not the the mystery of like how she died and what what why is this fourteen year old child giving birth um, and all the circumstances and she's a you know crack addict and or a meth addict and all this stuff. Um, the real issue is that the baby has survived, and uh, that's now this is the problem that we need to solve. Okay. Uh, which happens three minutes in, literally, like at three minutes, we're already off and running with the problem that we're going to solve, and we're introduced. And then it's not till after the impetus. That's what's a little unconventional about this, but totally works. After the impetus was when we learn a little more about Anna and uh, part of what drives her, combined with uh, the rules of the universe for uh, for Nikolai, as well. Um, Cool. Okay, so we've got the impetus, we've got the the dramatic questions. 
that are posed in really dramatically different uh, times and a very unconventional structure. Um, and then uh, we want to we want to identify the midpoint and the low point. Okay, what would you guys say is the midpoint for Eastern Promises? Uh, the midpoint is when they're in the cafe, and he takes the journal away from him and says, "I don't know mm -hmm. anything about no address." Yeah, do you agree with that, oh. Jay? I can see that as as a midpoint. I, I think it it does get a little tricky because by that point in the movie, you're you're balancing between figuring out if Nikolai or Anna is the protagonist, and yeah. so I felt a bigger shift when Nikolai is asked to kill Anna's uncle. Oh, okay. So, and again, with the midpoint, we're looking at a culmination of a sequence. So there should be kind of an emotional swell, which is either a, a, a dramatic a reversal, a plot reversal, some sort of change. Now, the, the point of the midpoint is that we're, we feel like we're getting really close to solving the problem. And all of a sudden, the floor drops out from beneath us, and we and the stakes are suddenly raised way up, and um, so suddenly the, the the tension tends to rise, and all the all the choices become very reactionary. Mm -hmm. um, now, the truth of it is, is uh, Jay, you got a really good point that it could be when he go told him to go kill the uncle, um, and yet we didn't feel a great deal of tension or concern about the uncle. He seems like one more step. Like if the dramatic mm -hmm. question is about the well-being of the baby, right. killing the uncle almost seems like a subplot. It almost seems like a, a kind of secondary issue. Um, but when we're looking at the dramatic question of the well-being of the baby, where, you know, where's the baby going to end up? It's interesting because I don't feel like it has a very clear, strong culmination or midpoint. The, mm -hmm. the, the, moment, the, the two moments that I was looking at as candidates for the midpoint was the moment where Semyon shows up at the hospital and says, I translated the, the journal and it names my son. And so I'm asking you, please, can, you know, can we please just destroy the journal to protect my son? Because that's the first time that she's like, oh, Shit, I didn't realize this was... She's like, I don't care about the son. I just want the baby to be okay. And yeah. yet, you know, that's a liability. So that that's a you know that's where she feels like she's coming close to solving the problem. And yet, you know, for the first time we're revealing there's a crime involved here. And there's... And the baby's the product of rape. Which can be, you know... that So that definitely adds to complexity and it raises the stakes. But it doesn't feel quite like a culmination for Anna. Uh, and then the next moment that Todd, that you said about them sitting in the diner, uh, that was the next candidate. I was thinking that's a really good point because you're like, okay, I'm going to solve the problem. I now know that these are criminals that I'm dealing with. And this mm -hmm. driver isn't just a driver. He's, he's some sort of thug. And then he just tricks me and takes the journal and walks away. You know, mm -hmm. all of a sudden she's completely without like the, the baby, the, the well-being of the baby is completely lost. So that, yeah, that's actually a good point. That's a really good, good, you, you make a good point that that could be the midpoint because that's the moment where it's like, well, shit, not, well, what do we do with the, about the baby? You got your evidence, but right. Um, yeah. yeah okay. Would, but both taught on that one. Yeah. My, my issue with that is that, you know, what is the emotional impact on, um, 
on Anna? And for that matter, what's the emotional impact on Nikolai? I, I, mean, I, I personally think that... Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, oh, no, just real quick. I, I was just going to say, Anna just realized she was lied to. Yeah. She's... she's uh, yeah. What were you going to say, Todd? Which... She, she she's not only introduced into that world and she kind of believes the her uncle a little bit more but she also thinks she's going to have a resolve yeah that ends up being like the climax to her story is like oh it's going to be a resolve and it's a false climax because all of a sudden what she thinks is going to happen doesn't happen and that's what kind of um in her story at least that's if we're saying Anna's the protagonist then i would suggest that that's her midpoint and i think uh, Nikolai would have a completely different midpoint because, again, like I said, these are it's a, it's a split dramatic question. Yeah, there are two different and, stories going on. You're absolutely right. Yeah, and even though they're in the same hemisphere, they're not necessarily. I mean, they they're kind of joined by theme a little bit. Yeah. Um, the life and death thing, obviously, and and the power structure, but um, ultimately they're. They're kind of it's it's a split story, and I would suggest that yeah, that is definitely Anna's mid midpoint where she thinks, okay, I'm finally going to fix this, and then boom, he yeah. walks away saying, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, with Nikolai, I think his midpoint, um, oh gosh, because um, he's got a weird, he's got this weird climax, the the Schwitz that he's in. You know, he goes to the Schwitz, and it's a—it's definitely a, cl- a climax of, of a sort, where he's fit, he's fighting these Croatian or the not Chechens. Crimeans, Chechens. Yeah. Um, the Chechens. Um, but then again, I mean, his climax might be the fact that it's when he's declared um, to have the stars, and he's a vor now, and he's—that could also be his climax, and then. Um, or it honestly might be his midpoint because he's thinking that that's what he's, that's what he's there to do. But what it actually is is not a, the climax because it's not what he really thinks it is. Yeah. You so know what I mean, it's like. So I I think you're tapping into something that I want to dive into in just a little bit. But first, I okay. want to go from the midpoint to the. Excuse me. All right. Um. Okay, we were just talking about the midpoint. Uh, what is the low point for Eastern Promises? For Anna's story, I think it's when Cersei, what's his name? Kerman? Kermit? The son of the bad guy? Uh, hang on. Kiril? Ikrim. Kerim. Kiril? Krim. Kiril? 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 Are you talking about uh, Vincent Cassell's character? Yes. Uh no, you're right. Karim's the 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 kid that gets killed in the cemetery. Ekram. Ekram um, is the kid. Ekram. Ekram is the one that kills. Yeah, the son Kirill. Kir- no, not Kirill. Um, Kirill. Yeah. Kirill. Yeah, Semyon's son. That's okay. What what that, scene with no. Kirill? No, it's the son of Simeon. What's his name? Kirill. Vincent Cassell K-I- is. R I L L, Kirill. Oh man, his picture just didn't look like him for a second there. Okay, <laughs> so it's Kirill. Okay, um, so Carol. Uh, yeah. Uh, okay. okay what, so, what scene are you talking about? 
what's the low point? When Kirill's in the uh, elevator and she runs up to the baby, uh, to, the, to the the nursery, and the baby's disappeared, but she's got a dozen roses. Okay, I would argue that that's not a low point because it's not something that's that a- forces her to reevaluate her situation or it's not an all-is-lost moment. It is a moment of frantic, desperate action or a, I a would disagree. moment. Okay, go ahead. I would disagree because at that point she doesn't consider taking the child into her own home. Until that really point she that? does not. Yeah, well, I mean, I think she thinks about it all the time. But I think exactly. I think that I think the whole movie is just a big distraction from her saying, "I really want this baby for myself. I'm I'm going to take this." Baby. Well, yeah, <laughs> I'm going to take that baby. Um, yeah, and then the whole thing—it's almost—it's almost like a Mulholland Drive. The whole movie is a fantasy about a justification for why she should get what she wants. Which is, you know, I, of course I should take this baby because otherwise it'll grow up as a prostitute without me. True. <laughs> well, in this case, it's true. Well, you know, and I want to assume that, you know, she took the legal means to be like, okay, this baby's going to be institutionalized. So, uh, you know, she went through the system to be able to legally adopt her as her own. Uh, she didn't just mm-hmm. kidnap the baby and, you know, raise it. Hopefully, but we don't know that. That's true. Uh, Oh well. (laughs) Oh well. Either way. (laughs) Unless she's like, well, hey, you know, I can raise my, I can start my own brothel up, and just raise this kid illegally. There's no legal trace of it. She's like, hey, free baby, (laughs) free baby. (laughs) No, no, she's a rescue. (laughs) Hey. Oh no. Yeah. (laughs) She's a rescue. Uh okay so so if the low point isn't that then it must be what is what? the moment that feels the most the dramatically heavy the moment where you just feel like all is lost like the the baby is just doomed and there's nothing she can do about it I don't know I mean is it is it when Kirill's trying to throw him in the Thames throw him in the Thames because that, I would think that was the climax. That's the climax. Yeah. Yeah. So. So, let, let it me show could you be with the uncle because she doesn't even like the uncle very much. Yeah. Let me show you what I came up with. Uh, this was okay. kind of a a breakdown of. Um, are you guys seeing this? The diagram. Yeah. Yeah. That's I mean, actually what I was any... thinking. I was thinking it was a bathhouse brawl, but it it doesn't connect much to the baby. Exactly. This is probably my biggest issue with it. Now, this is a good example of somebody who clearly uh, rejects the three-act structure. Because you can't cleanly or neatly identify these moments as act breaks. Um, You have the impetus happening three minutes in. Which, again, do you think the story works emotionally? Are you emotionally engaged in these characters and their objectives and the conflicts that they're facing? Yeah. I feel like it still works. I mean, yeah. it's it's been what? Nine years? Eight years? Yeah. yeah. Two, oh, 2007. So. Yeah. Yeah, so it's been a while. and 14 years. It seems to be f- still relevant. Um, there, uh, so what are you saying? I don't see the... Uh, I don't see the low point. 
on on here. It's it's framed out. It's it's cropped out. So. Oh, I think you're. I think the way you're seeing the screen, it's cropped out. You gotta yeah. plus it up. Yeah. I just so the did. the low point is I identified the Bathhouse brawl as the closest thing because this is the moment where um, where he learns that Semyon has set him up to take the fall for Kirill. Mm-hmm. Okay, Which, so but for Anna, and that's the that's the thing is if we look at this, Anna pretty much disappears. She loses all of her yeah. agency. Uh, from the moment that she gives up the journal, she's got no leverage. Uh-huh. From that point on, you know, and considering that what she wants is to find the the family of the baby, and and that's kind of my issue is she, you know, she she points out about thirty minutes in, she says, if I don't get this baby to her family, she'll be raised as an orphan in an institution, which for I'm her is what that. the that's biggest the stakes. Point. What's the low point? So. I mean, you could argue the his, low point for Anna is not getting the the address when she first gives up the diary. No. You could. Uh, the The problem is, is that you know, it's you know, what does that do uh, to her? Like, so the next time we see her, um, yeah, she shows up randomly at the restaurant, and she says, "I'm just passing by," and she mm-hmm. wants to pick a fight with him. You know, she and she does, yeah. And, and the thing of it is, like to me, that doesn't make a lot of sense. I, I don't know why that character would do that. She's just going to stand outside and wait for these guys to show up. Um, yeah. And well, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that in this movie where people are kind of hanging out, waiting for someone to show up. <laughs> Did you notice that there was like a, you know Nikolai and the on the yeah. motorcycle and yep. It's it just. Really? You know what? But, you know what? Before we get, because I do have quite a few plot holes I want to talk about, um, so maybe oh, okay. we should right. we should talk, we should do our best, our biggest concerted effort to f- analyze what the what the best intentions of the director and the writer and the the actors are, because Anna I do think lies. Anna lies. Yes, <laughs> that was cute. Anna. Um, because I, I do think you know this was a movie that really stuck with me. I watched it probably twenty thirty times within three years of it coming out. I, it really mm-hmm. hit me the first time. And then I didn't see it for years, and I kind of developed this whole kind of theory about what it was really about. And then recently, re- re-watching it for this episode to try and analyze it, I was surprised. I was almost kind of underwhelmed at, at the emotional impact of this movie. There, Like mm-hmm. you said, there are a lot of moments where people are like, I guess we can just have this moment where they are learning this and having this conversation anyway we'll, we'll get in that with plot holes but um yeah. but yeah i i think that you know the the moment where Semyon proposes that you know give me the journal and i'll tell you where the baby's from that could be a midpoint or anna gives up the the journal and get doesn't get it uh the, what she wanted that could also be a midpoint both of them uh, have about it's 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 definitely more impactful when she doesn't get what she wants out of it, but she literally has a mob boss showing up at work, basically saying, "If you don't give me what I want, I'm going to make your life very difficult." So mm-hmm. the subtext of that scene is he's threatening her life, he's threatening her family's life, and the baby as well. That's why he's showing up at the hospital, saying, "There's always a way in. I can always get through any door I want." That's that's a pretty heavy dark moment. And then from that moment, you know, uh, she gives the journal up. That could be a midpoint. 
a lot of these don't feel like did you ever feel like Anna's life was really in danger? No. No. She kind of yeah. seemed like a white uh let's say white. Um a she white seemed like lady? a a white lady. Yeah, she's fine. She's a white lady. Uh, no, you're not a Karen, but she she uh, well, I mean when she shows up trying to pick a fight, I'm like, well, "What are you doing?" <laughs> Yeah, but, what was her? Um, oh, you know, I, I, sorry, we're still digressing into plot holes. Sorry, sorry, uh, right, uh, right, right. But again, I, I do think this is—it's a fascinating story. I do think it hinges a lot on Vigo Mortensen's uh, charisma and his intensity, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. Uh, he's such a compelling character that you can't take your eyes off him. He's absolutely mm-hmm. fascinating. You're constantly wondering what he's thinking, and he just has this way with the camera that. You're 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 just projecting so much depth to him, whether he's feeling it or not. Um, mm-hmm. So I I do think that you know I think the structure is a little muddy. You don't have these moments uh, that that arrive at a, a culmination or an emotional crescendo, which is a little bit closer to real life. Um, at the same time, this is a you know this is a mafiosa drama, and kind of similar. You know we talked about this with. Um, uh, Miller's Crossing, but again, we're dealing with the subtext of uh, how does homosexuality play into the mob life, um, mm-hmm. and how you know, and and this kind of old world values, which is definitely it plays in heavily to the theme. All right, so we've got an overlook of the kind of the, just the the broad story, uh, like the kind of the, the way it's structured, the way it's laid out. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, character. Let's dive into character. Um, now we've already identified that Anna and Nikolai are kind of dual protagonists. We're actually, they're parallel stories. We're following both of their stories. Um, Mm -hmm. the thing of it is, is that Nikolai, we don't, we're not follow. He doesn't have a dramatic question. We're not asking what is he going to achieve for most of the movie. We're just following Mm -hmm. him because he has an amazing haircut and he's really cut. And that jaw, you just want to stare at his jaw and his eyes forever. Um, so, so then, you know, so let's look at Anna. Uh, we always go through this kind of the conscious desire, the, the inner conflict, the dimensions of the inner conflict. What is her conscious desire? Are we talking in abstracts or are we talking about very specific to the, to the plot? So the conscious desire is the plot. It's the dramatic question. Uh, so what does she consciously know that she wants to achieve for the, for the duration of the movie? She wants to find the safety for the child. She wants the Good. child to be safe. Exactly. She wants to do the right thing. Find a safe home for the baby. Exactly. Yeah. So what is her unconscious drive? What what's, what psychological mechanisms are driving her to make the choices she's making? She wants a family. She wants a family. Hmm. That's interesting. She wants do a family. Do you think she that's could it? Also... Um, I, I think that could be it. Because she's going through breakup and clearly she does take in the baby at the end yeah see what's yeah. what's interesting about that is we do learn that a little bit about her history i do think it's a little expositional where she has that argument with her uncle and he says oh you know he's literally sitting in the room with her saying so you moved in she goes yeah i moved in so you're not with that that doctor anymore and they start talking about how he's he's black and then they're you know, all their assumptions and bigotry starts to come out. 
and then she yeah, says with, that's with, why. Then. With all the racisms in movies like this. <laughs> well, I, you know, that's part of the point. Is is you know they're they're pointing out the fact that you know this this old world mafioso uh, world is is very racist. Like it's it's very tribal. It's very you know it's not just if you don't look like a same skin color. If it's if you don't have the same tattoos or the right tattoos, you're dead. You're not one of us. It's very tribal in that sense. We don't have a strong sense. You know, we know that her father had died sometime in Christmas in the past year or two. Um, mm-hmm. That's why her and her mother, that's, you know, probably part of what motivated her to want to move back in with her mother after the breakup. Um, and that's why she's driving her dad's car or her dad's uh, motorcycle around. But we don't we don't get to see a lot of like the, the unconscious drive that's driving her to prove something. Um it's she's she seems a little milk toast honestly i don't, I don't see a, a strong drive we, we only know that she really wanted a baby and she was brokenhearted about losing it which is it is devastating it is i connect sure. with her i sympathize with her for that um but i don't know how that uh really informs uh any kind of character choices other than you know she wants to make sure this baby's okay in fact, I think it, was an ad- it implies that what this really that this movie is really about her rationalizing, not contacting the family and adopting the baby instead. Yeah, I think Which it was is- the I, I think it was an attempt to get the audience to empathize with her when she does the wrong thing by not con- contacting the family. It's like, well, you know, she really had a rough time. And so now she's. Yeah, I mean, the, it's des- true. The whole time I'm, I, you know, I would say most of the time I'm watching the movie, I'm like, yeah, she should probably raise the baby herself, which I don't know if that's true. You know, maybe, you know, yeah. that's a judgment. Like, that family could love that little baby, you know, whether they're mm-hmm. poor or not. That, that's not really relevant. Um, that right. might be the right thing for the family. But she's making a decision for that family that she's going to adopt it, um, mm-hmm. which, you know, that, that brings a lot of interesting conflicts but because of that we're not getting a very powerful unconscious drive we're not we're not we don't get anything really authentic other than she has maternal instincts and she wants to be a mother that mm-hmm. doesn't tell us a lot she we know that she probably has fondness for her father um she seems to have a decent fondness for her mother um but there's just not a lot that we can really dive into. So like her Achilles right. heel, what would you say her Achilles heel is? What is the weakness or the false belief that she needs to learn? That's that's part of the problem of not having a real depth of that character is we don't really know what her we don't know what her flaws are. So really. the I mean, so with the Achilles heel, we want to look at Viggo Mortensen is her Achilles heel. Uh, actually, the the mistakes that she makes, you know, when we're identifying Achilles heel, we want to look at the mistakes that they're making, their their flaws, mm-hmm. or the things that we're like, oh, why did they do that? Or oh, this this her, this choice, this value system, caused all these problems. And the truth of it is, is at best, the only Achilles heel she has is she's far too trusting of dangerous people. Yeah, that's that's the only thing we can see where she's making some mistake. Jay? Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, I was being serious when I said Vigo Mortensen. I mean, she has that moment at the end where they, they kiss and everything. I feel like mm-hmm. leading up to that point, like you said, she's very trusting of him. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's a fair point. So her, uh, you know, he's he's a dangerous person. She she immediately, from the very first time they have that meet cute, 
she's like, okay, this guy's kind of, he's sketchy, shady. He looks like, he looks like a Russian thug. Um, but there's kind of also that attraction too, which I guess there might be some way to kind of delve into that psychology of, you know, maybe her father was trying to get away from that, from that world. And now she's feeling that kind of draw toward him, which would be interesting. I just don't feel like it was explored very much in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of that, the moral imperative, um, I, I don't think we, you know, at best the moral imperative could be in order to survive in this world, you shouldn't trust dangerous men, which seems kind of a, a tautology. It's like, yeah, no, duh. <laughs> um, so thematically, if we're if we have to identify a theme simply from Anna's point of view, um, the the proto theme, which is you know her uh, the 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 lesson that she learns from her experience, ultimately. She she basically you know she's does well. Let me ask you this: Does Anna arc? Does she have a character arc? I don't think so. Does she morally adapt to a new world? K- kind of. Yeah, kind of. But well, how so? Yeah. Tell me about that. I mean, she ultimately makes the decision to keep the baby, where her mm-hmm. strategy was to find the baby, its family. Yeah. How do we know that her strategy wasn't to keep the baby from the beginning? Like, we literally have her holding the baby and crying over it, which is pretty extreme for a midwife. Yeah, we're going to babies every day. It's like... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I totally see where you're coming from. And I guess we don't really know. And she does give clues that she has this connection to this baby. Yeah. But throughout the movie... The goal seems to be getting the address and getting contact Good. with the family. Yeah. You're right. Yeah, you're completely right. Um, so if we're going to look at theme, we actually need to start delving more into Nikolai uh, a little bit more and the relationship between mm-hmm. the two. Because this is definitely the, the story of two characters. Uh, what's what's Nikolai's conscious desire? Infiltrate. Infiltrate. Well, Infiltrate. 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 Exactly. So he wants to infiltrate. Um, So then the question becomes, why does he want to infiltrate? That that brings us to the unconscious drive. What is the engine beneath all of this that is pushing him to sacrifice everything and risk his whole life, risk everything in order to infiltrate the mob? His mom told him he was always he was always told him he was special. Mm Hmm. (laughs) Uh, Jay you got anything what unconscious Uh, drives does he have his dad who worked for the government his dad worked for the government that's a really good point do we know that yeah we do yeah he says we do know that when do we know when do we learn that I I guess I'm during the during the initiation process uh, where they're interrogating him uh, he said your father he said my father worked for the government and then they said, your father was a coward for doing that. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's because, before. okay. I, I have to include something real quick. Um, I was watching the film or on a DVD that the subtitles weren't working. So I didn't oh, really? I couldn't get, yeah, for some reason the subtitles weren't working. And I, I ended up not being able to understand any of the, I don't speak Russian myself. 
And yeah. uh, so I couldn't understand a lot of the Russian scenes. I knew generally what they were saying, but I didn't know specific. And that was the one scene where I really missed out was, oh, okay. was that there must have been information that I missed. Yeah. I always rent it on Redbox. Or I'll, I'll, I'll just buy the movie on Redbox. So that way I can watch it a million times. Mm. So. Um, yeah. Okay. So the truth of it is, is we really don't have much at all. Like most of the unconscious drive for Nikolai. All we know is that he, uh, he's willing to do certain thug things. Like he'll cut up the body, get rid of the evidence. He seems to know a lot. He fights really well. He took out two really dangerous, uh, knife wielding thugs. Um, but ultimately, and yet, you know, he will arrange for a, like the prostitute that uh, he was forced to sleep with, um, or he was forced to have sex with, or forced to rape her. Yeah. Um, like, he, we oh. know that he gave her money and then arranged for her to be pulled out of the brothel and sent home. Um, so it's like little things like that where we're like, okay, so he's got a good heart, or at least some good intentions um he keeps trying to protect anna so that indicates some but we don't have much insight into him he's pretty much a blank slate and what i mean what's great is they cast vigo mortensen to fill that blank slate with Mm. so much of his own depth and so much of his own intensity um but the the truth of it is is if you cast anybody else or just from the script alone, you're really not getting much of a sense. All you know is that this is an undercover agent. This is just a blank undercover agent, which is motivated by whatever he's motivated by. So this is definitely keeping the audience at an arm's length. Um, And then, uh, so is Achilles heel? We have no idea. He does everything perfect. He does everything right. He doesn't have any flaws as far as we know. If anything, you could argue I think this is a flaw, but it's a flaw they're not exploring at all in the movie, which is that he trusted Anna enough to start exposing certain vulnerable, intimate parts of himself. Like he started, you know, he started having a conversation with her, like the moment where they kissed at the very end. I was like, there's no way he's having that conversation with her. But, um, so unfortunately, just from the character decisions and the, and the inner conflict, we're not, we're, we're, this is definitely a script where they're definitely keeping the characters are at arm's length. And yet, mm-hmm. I felt incredibly compelled by his character. Mm-hmm. I felt compelled by the movie. Um, I think that was so, in the casting in a lot of ways. Yeah, definitely in the casting. Um, mm-hmm. And I do, th- you know, I do think the storytelling was really interesting. One one thing that I I kind of tapped into a long time ago is I was, you know, I, I was really obsessed with Joseph Campbell years ago. I, I think I read him for the first time when I was like seventeen years old and. Uh, which, you know, and then mythology, I've always been fascinated by mythology. And I started to notice that there was a pattern that emerged in Eastern promises. And the pattern was the story of the Minotaur. And mm-hmm. what's, what's interesting is you could line up the characters of the story of the Minotaur almost perfectly overlap it with Eastern promises. Um, and it's a very similar narrative. You have mm-hmm. Semyon which is King Minos. And so basically real quick, the, the, the story of the Minotaur is you have uh, King Minos who was, mm-hmm. he was a king in a disputed territory. And in order to uh, proclaim himself king over Crete, 
uh, he went to Poseidon and said, give me your most powerful bull, a beautiful bull. I'll sacrifice it to you and everyone will know that I am loyal to you and I'll rule Crete with justice and all this stuff. And then, you know, the, the bull, Poseidon blessed him with a bull and he was so enamored and fascinated by it. He said, you know what? Tell you what, I'll just kill my next most beautiful bull instead. So then Poseidon cursed <laughs> Uh, his wife and said, all right, you didn't make the sacrifice I required of you. So uh, my bull is going to, or uh, I'm going to curse your wife. So she falls in love with the bull. And then the, his wife sets out and seduces the bull and then gives birth to this half man, half bull, this monster. Um, from there, uh, he's got this genius, uh, brilliant uh, architect who designs all of these like complex puzzles and stuff, who builds this labyrinth named Daedalus and Daedalus uh, uh, you know he, he builds up uh, the labyrinth he also uh, and of course Daedalus and Icarus are the same you know the, the father and son um, yeah. and then during that time Crete and Athens uh, the, the son of King Minos had gone over to Athens and was murdered by some Athenians who were jealous of him and uh, rather than and uh, Minos was going to go in and just slaughter Athens and then King uh, Aegeus was basically like, well, just hold on. Um, we will send uh, seven of our most beautiful young men and young women. Uh, for, so 14 of our young men and young women to you and you can sacrifice them to the monster in the labyrinth. Um, and then, you know, one day Theseus, who was the kind of bastardized son of uh, Aegeus said I'm going to go to Crete and um, I'm going to kill the Minotaur and free us from this from this sacrifice. Free us from this obligation of having to send over our most beautiful uh, girls and boys. And so Theseus come, goes over there disguised uh, falls in love with Ariadne who is the daughter of King Minos goes into the labyrinth. She gives him this golden spool that Daedalus had given her. And he takes the spool, goes into the labyrinth, finds the Minotaur, murders him, and then escapes. And the thing that's interesting about that is, uh, and I've, I've always been baffled by this, just because you kill the Minotaur doesn't mean that uh, King Minos is going to be okay not giving up. Like he's still gonna want the fourteen. He's still still gonna want the sacrifice in retribution for his own son's murder. Mm. So that's not resolved. Anyway, plot hole in Greek mythology. Just to point out, but um, but if you start looking at it, you you have King Minos, which is Semyon. You have uh, what would be Semyon's idea of a half man, which is he he sees homosexuality as a as a perversion or as a distortion of manhood so he would you would regard his own man as a half man or his own son which would be Kirill. Kirill would be the the minotaur in the labyrinth theseus would obviously be uh the undercover uh fsb agent which is um which is nikolai and then ariadne would be anna and what's interesting mm -hmm. is the 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 thread that ties them all together the, the golden spool that Theseus uses to go into the labyrinth and to get out would actually be the baby. Mm. So once you once you see those metaphors, you can actually see this. And then of course, uh, Azim is Daedalus, 
And that, you know, the, mm-hmm. the whole question becomes like, why have Ekram in there? Why have the scene where this poor uh, mentally compromised kid or this, this uh, kid with developmental issues touched by mm-hmm. angels? Why have him come in and murder him? It's a brutal scene. It's really disturbing. And then later, the next time we see him, he's, you know, coming out of a soccer game, pissing on a grave, and he gets murdered. Um, except that's the perfect metaphor for Daedalus and Icarus. Hmm. Azim is the one who's working all the different angles. Like, he's creating the labyrinth that everyone's getting lost in. Um, but the truth of it is, is rewatching it, uh, it's it's a pretty big leap. Uh, even I'm not totally convinced of it. It's it's a parallel that I saw, uh, and I worked really hard to kind of uh, develop the the metaphor and the allegory. Because then, if you if you take that and then extrapolate it a little further, that turns London into Crete and Russia into Athens, which mm-hmm. is uh, on an allegorical level, you could definitely say that you know that, that this idea that like you know Russia is is viewing uh, these prostitutes are all Ukrainian, and you could argue that it's the you know you they're seeing Ukraine as kind of slaves that they're just fucking them over and manipulating them, and they're turning London into a kind of uh, conflicting kingdom. Um, but the truth of it is, is I, I think the the metaphor falls apart pretty quickly as soon as you look at the allegory. So I think it's a fascinating parallel but I'm not sure it actually holds up enough. Like it, you know, some of my other theories I think are actually, you know, like I'm, I'm still convinced that ET represents film for Spielberg. Mm. I'm still convinced that, um, Miller's crossing is really is about, um, uh, sorry, uh, Tom Reagan, who's actually in love with Leo, like, uh, as, as a lover is in love with them is, is in love with Leo. Um, but this one, I don't think it quite bears out. I, I think I'm trying really hard, working really hard to uh, express an allegorical dimension that probably wasn't really there. Although I do, I do think it's tapping into, you know, patterns. I don't, I don't think they're quite archetypes in that they're not universal patterns, but there is definitely the hero, the monster, the king, um, the, you know, the wise person. Um, but, uh, but I didn't see it as, as something that, that, uh, really applies. I don't think you could extrapolate the allegorical, uh, the allegory into the the world's uh, social allegory, or you you couldn't take this story and then extrapolate it to a socio political allegory, quite. Uh, so it, the truth of it is, I f- it feels a little loose. It feels a little fuzzy when it comes down to theme. I don't I don't think it proved a powerful theme. I think it's largely compelling characters with compelling actors. Um, kind of skimming the surface of interesting conflicts, you know. Like you said, it, it, this is a world where there, you could populate it with a lot of stories, but I don't think that they're driven by a a, a really powerful theme that that um, that's saying something about these characters. You know, like right. we 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 come away from this saying, "Isn't that cool that Nikolai is both extremely dangerous and also." turns out to be a good guy okay but you know look at the godfather that's morally complex it's fascinating uh it's characters in in powerful conflict with each other and you cannot easily condemn michael corleone for the choices he's making 
it's disturbing, it's haunting that he's becoming the Godfather, and yet it's utterly fascinating. In this case, well, you know what? Let's let's just do it. Let's just jump into plot holes, shall we? Um, I got a couple questions for you, and you tell me if these are plot holes or just weak story points, or am I just being too critical? Okay. Uh, the first one is this is my big one. Why didn't Kirill have Nikolai murder Soika? Soika was the uh, Chechen at the beginning that was getting the haircut, and he got his uh, throat sawed. Um, and Ekrem comes in and kills kills him. I thought Soika Why have was a... Azim take it? I thought Soika was a Vor. He, he was, was yeah. He was okay. Chechen. Yeah, Chechen. Chechen he was a Chechen, is, uh, though. Part of Russia. Yeah. I know that, but I, I thought he was... Okay. All right. Um... Wait, what was your question? Why didn't Kirill have Nikolai marry, murder Soika? Uh, I got the impression that at that point in the story, Nikolai was just a driver and uh, uh, someone that cleans up. Okay, so he's... Sorry. He specifically says when he introduces him to Azim, Azim says, your driver has to wait out here. And he goes, oh no, he's the undertaker. Yeah, he's the undertaker. Yeah, he's dangerous. Yeah, but I I still got the impression that he was just there to clean up. Okay, so so you didn't... You didn't think of him as like a, a murderer necessarily or an assassin or something. Not for them specifically. Also because when... Uh, I apologize these names, man. Yeah. When when Semyon asked him to kill the uncle, seems like, like a bigger point. Like, I'm actually asking you to do something this time. See, that's the thing is... When Semyon says, you know what I mean by this, right? You need to take care of him. There's already the presumption that that Nikolai is a very dangerous person. He's already been a murderer. The tattoos express that he's he's been a thief and a murderer before. Right. So he's already known to be a dangerous person, especially by Kirill. And then on top of that, Kirill has the stars, which Mm -hmm. means he is a dangerous person too. He's also an assassin. Why involve Azim, a Turk, that has nothing to do with any of this? He's not hes not even Russian. Why farm that murder out to him when literally all he did was just leave a bunch of loose ends? If he and Soika... Did you guys catch why, um, why he wanted Soika dead? Yeah. Why? Well, because Soika knew he was, he was gay. Okay, how, what was, makes you think he, he knew he was, he was gay? Well, because he was the one sharing all of the rumors. He was the one telling people that he was gay. Good, good. Um, I think you can actually take it a little bit further. Uh, I think Soika, uh, what they were implying was Soika and Kitty were sleeping together. Okay. And the reason the reason I say that is because uh, when Kirill uh, is, you know, talking shit about him, making fun of him, being, you know, looks like an ice cream or a Russian ice cream sickle. Um, after that, he spits a bunch of pistachio nuts on him and says, uh, "Pederast." You know, pederast mm. is, you know, when when an older man has a relationship with a, a younger man. Okay. Um, and usually, you know, usually a pedophilic relationship. Okay. And so the suggestion there is that. 
uh, he had some sort of relationship there. And that's the real so he reason probably, why he wanted Soika dead. He probably um, initiated Kirill mm-hmm. into um, the lifestyle he was... Yeah. Okay. And regardless, he he wasn't just talking shit. He was saying stuff that he personally knew. Not only that, later we find out there was rumors that Soika was talking to the cops, and he was yeah. probably telling him, "Hey, I've got leverage on Kirill. He's gay, and his father doesn't know it." Which means mm-hmm. Kirill would be very motivated to kill him. But again, why farm it out to Azim? Why farm it out to I, his Turkish? I have a theory on that. Go ahead. Because Azim was playing both sides. He was playing both sides, um, the uh, Chechens and the, and, uh, the, the family, that w- the London family. And so I think what they were doing was, uh, or well, it would have to be Kirill that, that asked him to do it. Mm-hmm. I think personally, if... Kirill was, or Nikolai and Kirill were the ones who were who were to do to have done it. Even if they gave him a, um, the, even if they gave them the uh, barber shop to do it in, I mm-hmm. think you would see it coming. It wouldn't mm-hmm. have been an easy. And also, I don't think Kirill does any. He doesn't. I don't. I think he's dangerous, but I think he's very much. Hey, go get those bottles of brandy. Mm. And uh, the fa- when the father says, no, 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 I want you to go get the bottles of brandy and I want you to take your time while you're doing it. I think Kirill is at the point where he's kind of going, uh, I don't get my hands dirty anymore. That's for the slaves. That's mm. for the slaves to do. And I think he very much saw Azim, which if you look at the relationship between Russia and, and the Turks, I think he very much saw um, Azim as beneath him and someone who already fiddles in that area. And so it's like, no, you've got to do it. And I think that was very much represented in the Daedalus and the Icarus relationship between the father and the son, because the father was was telling the son, do it. You've got to do it. You have to do this. Yeah. You've, you've got to do this. And, and ultimately we see kind of in, um, in relationship between the father and the son and Karim... Uh, uh, Kirill and Azim, you have those that very similar relationship. You have Kirill saying, Azim, you've got to take this guy out. And then you have Azim going to Akir? Akim? Ikram. Akil? Ikram. Ikram. Icarus? Ikram? Yeah, Uh, exactly. Yeah. So... Um, and Ikram's kind of going, I don't want to do this. I, I don't, I'm, this is not something I want to do. And then he, you know, goads him into it, and eventually he's willing to do yeah. it um, for the approval of his father. Uh, and ultimately, well, I, 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 I mean, think technically, that was, just so we're straight, Azim was his, uh, his uncle, was Ikram's uncle. But yeah, but yeah. They, they were taking but on a father son relationship. Yeah, metaphor. At the same time, when, when we're talking about these themes, we're, we are definitely talking about power relationships. Power. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is handed down to you, and I'm going to hand it down to you. And we mm-hmm. see that very much in a lot of these stories, yeah. or a lot of this story. This story is that is that um, ultimately people are manipulated into doing things for specific reasons. 
and a lot of times it's just to prove that they are being controlled by somebody else. See, okay, I think there were two reasons why they had why they introduced Azim and the Ikram characters. Okay. And the and it's a story problem. I think it's indicative of a story issue. And I think the main reason is they can't have Nikolai murdering somebody and then later saying he's undercover for the FSB. So Nikolai can do a post mortem processing. Processing. But he can't actually but he kill can't somebody. murder. Him. Yeah. Especially but if he was already he's... an informant for Scotland Yard. Well, that's true. And that and gives that a... away. And that does kind of And then know, the second function is that yeah, the second function is that when the Chechens are coming for Kirill, uh mm-hmm. we're the first time we see them is when they're murdering Ekrem. And so mm-hmm. they wanted to kind of have that pathos of, you know, Ekram's just this innocent kid who doesn't know what he's doing, and he's getting caught up in this uh, mafia feud. And again, it goes back to, okay, that's the story function, but I, I don't think it's the most logical way for them to do it. I honestly think Kirill would say, we need to kill that guy. And Kirill has Nikolai, who's a dangerous motherfucker. I mean, the way he presents it, the way he holds himself, he's dangerous. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I believe he's absolutely already a killer, and he's probably a killer before he's recruited into the FSB. Sure. And the thing I also think is is for Kirill, it's it's a plausible deniability with his father. If he if it comes to the point where he has to deny it to his father, he's able to. So here's the thing: we have that scene. We have the scene where you know they're in the back of the truck or the back of the van, and and Semyon kicks the door, and Kitty is like, "Whoa, what are you doing? You scared me, father!" Um, and and he says, "Don't lie to me." And he goes, "I didn't know anything about Soika." And he goes, "Don't lie to me. I know you're responsible for it. I know you're behind this." And that's see, and I think what he was really saying in that scene was. I know who you, I'm your father. You think you can keep this secret from me? And yeah, he's I agree. Talking, talking specifically about being gay. No, I, I, I think the father is basically telling him that no, there's no, there's no way I don't know what you're doing. Yeah, why, I, why I totally agree with that. So, um, I, I, it's one of those things where I think it's, uh, it's a convenience. It's not, it's not following the logic of the story. It's not quite respecting the story. Um, okay, the next one uh, I would say is. Uh, this is it's not so much a plot hole it's just why the fuck are you being this stupid uh why didn't anna have nikolai drop her off at another address she's just not savvy i i just don't i don't she got a sense like we know from their first interactions the first two interactions she had with them she's like uh you're a creep stay the fuck away from me and now and then and then right before that she's having the conversation with um Semyon and she says where do you live and she goes oh I'm okay it's fine I'll drop it I'm off good. yeah yeah you can tell she is she's being savvy there saying you know what I'll I'll get back to you like I'll I'll get this to you and then conveniently for story reasons uh he drives her home and she tells him where she actually lives which if that's baby me, blues man uh, yeah, I mean, if that's me, I'm having him drive me to some other place where I can walk in the back door somewhere and say, "I'm so sorry, I was being followed or whatever. Can you please help me?" You know, just just do do the smart thing. So, 
It's one of those weaknesses because that was, you know, that's the only, that's one of the big mistakes she makes. Um, mm-hmm. So some of my biggest things were, were things that felt like kind of clumsy scenes um, that I wanted to talk about. Like, uh, for example, when they're in that scene where he's driving her home, uh, he says, I thought you were a midwife. And she says, sometimes birth and death go together. And it's that's mm. one of those moments where I'm like, okay, that's that's the writer inserting themselves, mm. saying, I really want to say these themes. And it, it doesn't, I just don't believe, like it, it created a cringe factor for me because it was like, like if you yeah. ever, you, you've had a conversation with somebody, imagine somebody saying, sometimes death and birth go together. And you're yeah. just like, oh, your fucking Instagram poster. You're gross. <laughs> um, uh, also, the scene where, uh, okay, the moment we find out that Semyon was raping the 14-year-old child prostitute, right? We find that out by a slow truck in and uh, Stepan is, tr- is uh, dictating the translation. And his sister is recording everything down in the and writing it down, and then she walks in. So we, as the audience, hear that Semyon is the one who raped her, which is actually the most important piece of information, the most condemning piece of information. And then Anna walks in right after she says that. So we don't even, and that's that's what I mean. A more powerful way to approach that scene would be um, having. Anna discover that information and we're trained in on her emotional experience of that. That's when we feel the horror because the way they shot the scene, it feels very, Oh, by the way, he's the rapist. Wait, what? That's a really important piece of information, but the way they shot it, it comes off as, uh, it, 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 that's part of why it didn't emotionally land with me. It, it's part of the reason why I think structurally this does have some really weak moments that could have culminated more powerfully. Um, mm-hmm. The bathhouse scene. He's with, he's sitting down with Azim and he's and they're talking about the modes of distribution. Again, back to that Daedalus thing. Daedalus is the one who's setting up the whole labyrinth of, of uh, distribution. And... He says, and then he, he asks the question, obviously trying to get more information. He says, so where, where do they, um, where do they drop off the TVs? It's a drop off point. Yeah. yeah. And Azim says, uh-huh, I'll tell you when I get back from the bathroom. <laughs> and he starts laughing, like, like twist, practically twisting his mustache. And it's like, if I'm Nikolai, I'm like, why the fuck are you laughing? There is obviously yeah. somebody coming for me. Like, I got to get the fuck out I'm of here. Am I about to get killed? Yeah, exactly. Am I going to get killed? Why are you laughing? There wasn't anything funny about me asking that. Um, that that was just a, a bizarre choice that was totally telegraphing where it was going. And Nikolai was surprisingly unaware of it. Um, another cringe moment was when, you know, Kitty is they're standing over the, the a popsicle. And he just says, this is respect. And then he hands him money. And it's like. Okay, capitalism bad, and only all, all thugs are capitalists. <laughs> it's, mm. Okay, True. all right. Uh, not that right. I disagree with that, but it's it's a, just an obnoxious, cringy. Like it's it's another moment where the the writer is interjecting into the character's mouth, and it's don't, writers don't interject in your character's mouths. <laughs> just don't do it. Um, oh, and then this That's moment at dirty. the at the very end. They've just picked up the baby, and uh, Nikolai says, 
uh, it's totally fine. Your father went too far. Give me the baby. I got the baby. So the baby's safe. Kitty is like, hey, we're missing the party. Let's go. And he takes off. And then all of a sudden, Nikolai is talking to Anna saying, she's like, I have to know who you are. Like, literally, like the son of the king, the son of the mob boss is just a few feet away doing I don't know what. And he says, I have to know who you are. And Nikolai's response is, how can I become a king when the king is still in place? And it's like, first of all, it's like, oh, go fuck yourself. But it, yeah. but it's very like, uh, th- that's another like, okay, this writer is, again, interjecting themselves into the mouth of the actor. They're talking mm-hmm. about themes. But on top of that, he would never risk saying that was his real motivation, especially with the son of the mob boss literally dancing and being all goofy and stuff saying like let's go party he would ne- i just don't buy that scene for a moment and i know they wanted to have the moment where they got to kiss and i just think it i, I don't think uh, it would have it would have been so much more powerful if uh nikolai never even gave her any hint that he was a good person ever his actions show that he was a good person in fact he should have figured out a way to get her the address of the family without her finding out that it was him. And then because yeah. she's so clever, she puts two, she puts two and two together and figures out Nikolai was the one who put it together. That's cool. But if he tries to hide that he's doing a good thing, then I buy it even more. Because he's not going to be undercover and then risk that his you know crush is going to expose him. That's way too dangerous. It's irresponsible. Yeah, I agree. Um... We talked about this a little bit. Why did Anna just show up at the Trans-Siberian restaurant after they got fucked over? She just shows up and says, I was passing by. He goes, well, keep passing on. And it's like, I just don't, I don't know why she would do that. I don't believe it. Except for maybe she's like, uh, Nikolai's really hot. This, yeah, the scene itself didn't even really turn. Yeah. It was just, nope. it, it went from, uh, I was just passing by and then he grabs her and is like, oh, you're disrespectful, whatever. And then, yeah. then he's like, go in, I'll take care of this. And he's like, you should not be here, go. Yeah, and Kitty Lowry knows. There's no, yeah. It's a non-event. It was a non-event. It's definitely the first thing yeah. that I would cut. Um, oh, okay. Why didn't she go to the police? Why didn't the police already investigate? Why wouldn't they be already... Or wouldn't the police already be investigating the death of the pregnant teenager and therefore responsible uh, for finding the family as well? Mm. They would already be investigating. Someone, a 14-year-old, pregnant 14-year-old from another country shows up and is dead and the baby survives. That's going to be investigated. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then they got the trans... She literally has the card and the journal handed to the police. Like, just handed over to the police. Except... She wanted to keep the baby. That's the only reason you don't hand that to the police. She wanted to keep the well, baby. So we, I mean, the the hospital would have had some sort of policy that says af, after a certain point, you know, the immigration gets involved. And especially since she wasn't a citizen and there was no way of proving that she was, you know, yeah. whatever. Because they would have taken the journal and, and determined that, you know, she was. But she would have gone into the system, become a foster child. Uh, because there's no way of tracking back to where where she's from. The um, yeah, I think the whole time we're kind of the author is holding out for 
Anna to take over parenting the child. Yeah. I think that's pretty much the whole thing and we're not we don't we're not even introduced really to the police until what I would consider to be third act territory. Yeah. And um well, they, they do it, they do find the body that they have to process, but still, uh, you know. Yeah, but the, still, even characters are, are just kind of, it's, you know, it, it's not really well established that, okay, this guy is the guy from Scotland Yard, and he's yeah, yeah, yeah. in, he talks with the Russian desk, and, you know, whatever. Yeah. So, it's not very, I mean, there, there, were, there were a couple non-events in the story itself. I mean, the... The police finding the body wasn't really even a, an event. It was just them just kind of, <laughs> well, there's a body and his, it must be rushing. Cause yeah, it was a bit of a red herring where they're like, oh, the Scotland Yard is going to be on to Nikolai and then right. they're going to catch up to them and this is how they're going to solve the mystery. But then it yeah. just dropped it. It didn't go anywhere from there. Um, yeah. and, and that's what I mean is there, there are actually several scenes where we're just left to infer. There are moments that would have been a mm-hmm. cinematic culmination and instead – we just imply it. For example, Semyon is arrested. He's removed. Yeah. And we're left just to infer that. Mm-hmm. Like they collect his blood and Kirill takes the baby and is, you know, is gone. And then we cut from the scene of them kissing and saying goodbye. She takes care of the baby. And then we cut to um, Nikolai sitting in the throne of the booth where uh, Semyon was sitting, implying that he's now mm-hmm. the king. Which he's not now the king. Kirill is the king. He would be the yeah. successor. So, which would be interesting because that would that would be you know where the sequel would pick up. How is Kirill going to, or, or how is um, uh, Nikolai going to take out Kirill? Which would be a great story. Um, but the yeah, but the thing that is like that's a moment where I feel like you know him getting taken away in cuffs or some sort of confrontation. We never got to see the bad guy, uh, Semyon, actually arrested. Literally, the last moment yeah. we see him is he's saying, you know, Kitty is like, why did they come? And he's like, they came for my blood because they wanted to poison me. We're literally watching him from his back while he washes off his arm. And it's like. Yeah. He's pouring vodka on it. And it's like, okay. Yeah. And I, I get it. But, you know, ending on that beautiful scene where Nikolai's sitting in the throne in the booth, that's a great closing shot. But you, mm-hmm. you, we need to have some sort of cinematic re- resolution in order to engage right. it. Because they were just inferring he's gone now. He's been arrested. He's, mm-hmm. you know, they don't have to show him being, you know, a close-up on him. We truck out and the bars close in front of him and he grabs him and feels sorry for himself. That's silly. But some sort of moment, like poetically, that, that, re- that gives us that emotional, like, okay, Semyon is now removed from the picture. Otherwise, it's open-ended. Mm-hmm. And we, there are lots of scenes like that. For example, there had to be a scene where the Chechens came and met with Azim. Like, because there was... Uh, we see the scene where Azim is standing outside in the, the, the docking bay. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. And yeah. he says the Chechens, they're wolves, they're, they're savages. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the thing, it's like, well, wait, how do we know they're savages? Wait, how? Because of that, it's people talking about other people. We never see the moment where they were really like. Um, sorry, that totally threw me with a pop screen. Um, but we never, we never. Sorry. No, that's good. We never see the moment uh, because we don't see the Chechens come in. They probably shot it and they probably just cut the whole scene. But the Chechens probably came in, confronted Azim, 
and Azim was like, you know, we just took out Ikram. Uh, you need to, you know, we're going to kill you too unless you can give us Khadid. You know, or at least, or at the very least, let's see the Chechens walk into the barbershop. And then we cut to yeah. Azim. That would have told us everything we need. But because we just jump out of there, we totally missed the fact that these Chechens came after Azim first and that motivated everything else. Mm-hmm. It's it's little stuff mm-hmm. like that that starts to this is why I do feel like this movie ended up feeling like a really solid first draft or a really solid incomplete draft where I honestly what I would have loved to have seen is Anna from the very beginning is totally against her Russian roots. She doesn't want anything to do with her Russian roots. Um, right. Maybe she feels maybe she's estranged from her Russian father and um, and she doesn't even want a child. And then this happens and she is reluctantly forced to reconnect with the roots and she starts to f- connect with Semyon and, like, and is kind of like, man, I, you're the kind of person I wish my father was. That would have been interesting. Yeah. And then she starts to feel like um, and then she's, she falls in love with the baby. She falls in love with all his culture and then she sees the dark side. That would have been the midpoint, seeing that Semyon's actually not this great, wonderful person. And then fuck the whole undercover FSB thing. Have Nikolai be a legit thug, a legit killer, and a legit assassin who, by having a relationship with her, becomes morally conflicted about his loyalties. He wants to protect her because once they reveal that he's FSB, that he's just undercover and he's coordinating with Scotland Yard, from that point on, we're like, oh, he's a good guy. I guess he's a good person. There's no moral ambiguity. There's no actual real conflict. It's him just pretending yeah. to be a bad person, but really just being brave. And I think that actually cheated what could have been a really emotional conflict. Instead, it's it's just a beautiful, charismatic performance and a beautiful... It's beautifully shot. I love this movie. I really enjoy the movie. I just yeah. think it's, it's a... a it's not quite what I think it could have been had they taken the time to develop the characters in a way that, that they were emotionally invested more than just she's got maternal instincts and he, mm. it's okay. He's good because he's undercover. So we know we can like him. He would have been much more interesting as, as somebody who is not undercover, as a, as a legit thug who had a moral quandary about his position. Mm. That would have been mm-hmm. interesting. Maybe that's what I needed. I need to rewrite Eastern Promises, but it's somewhere there else. There you go. <laughs> but Western Promises. Western Promises. Uh, Eagle Mortensen's played a cowboy in the past, and he was good. So. <laughs> yeah, Appaloosa. Yeah. Appaloosa is one of my favorite cowboy movies. I got a really got good friend, a screenwriter friend who was in Appaloosa. We, we should do, should do we that. Should do that for the, actually, we should yeah. have him on. That'd be awesome. Yeah, that would be amazing. Um, One of the things that I kind of, as I was watching this, I I kind of started to believe that the author was talking more about, or the the writer was talking more about um, the Hollywood culture than he was talking about the Russian culture. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And 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 to a certain degree, I kind of started seeing it as being, oh, okay, wait a minute. Um, there are certain kind of um, thresholds uh, that I mean, working in working in film, um, there are certain languages and and uh, that you have to to speak in order to appear legitimate on a set. You have to. 
Um, you have to prove yourself. I mean, I'm sure Jay is a as an actor. It's it is a real grind. You have a tendency to feel like the slave. You know, you're constantly going to auditions, um, trying to somehow get something going. Um, and you're you're kind of doing your own side hustles. And as a matter of fact, this is one of them. You know, where you where you're you're um, getting exposure and trying to get something going. Um, and then ultimately it's once the right person sees you, then they can either set you up for a fall or they can set you up for the ride. Like Robert Rodriguez in his book, uh, Rebel Without a Crew talked about how, um, he was at Sundance and no, this is before Sundance. He met with one of the agencies and they were talking about him as a package, like him as being like, they were talking about what he looked like and what he, what kind of product he created and that kind of content he made, that kind of thing. And they, um, they were like, yeah, okay, we're, you know, we're basically going to spin him for Sundance and create, um, uh, this mysticism around him and, and create this mythology around him. Mm-hmm. And that was their focus for, and and he realized that he was a part of a machine now that was he it was inevitable that he was going to become famous he was going to get made basically mm, after this meeting and um he realized it's because he had the right look and he had um the content that people were looking for and he even had um the way that he pitched a story was interesting to them and it was it was around the same time that like Quentin Tarantino put out Pulp Fiction and he put out um, was it Desperado or El, El Mariachi right. and uh, uh, which became Desperado but he he was kind of famous for putting out the seven thousand dollar film yeah. that he shot down in Guanajuato was it right Guanajuato or was it Desperado Oaxaca? was in Guanajuato yeah well, yeah anyway so um, you know and. S- to a certain degree, I can see that this is an author, and ultimately the goal for Anna and for um, Vigo Mortensen, Vigo is constantly on this upward progression. Literally, they're using stars to signify their um, their uh, ascent mm-hmm. into a higher power position. And Anna, she wanted the ultimate creative control, literally, because she wasn't able to produce early on and so she saw a sure thing and and felt like she wanted to be a part of that um so let me ask you do you you think do you think eastern promises is kind of stephen knight's take on uh, like the promise of hollywood the how it turns into kind of a prostitute i think there's no question that it is and i think there's no question okay i am i question it (laughs) <laughs> well, I, I don't. I mean, because, I mean, it's just kind of at a certain point I started going, oh, this is Hollywood. This is basically he's kind of taking London and turning it into to Russia, which is a very Hollywood thing to do. And then and we're feeling um, that a London becomes this misplaced Russian set um, that I mean, even the, even the shot of the Brooklyn or not the Brooklyn Bridge, sorry, the London Bridge. Yeah. It looks like they had like these. um onion bulbs like the kremlin on the top i mean it was like if i was a um 
uh, a little bit less uh, savvy filmmaker, I would I would be okay with going. Ah, these are the these are uh, Russian. This is a Russian bridge. You know what I mean? It's like there were these all these moments where you kind of felt this very old um, set that kind of took place of. Uh, it felt like the allegory. They weren't shooting the Eye of London. They weren't shooting uh, Big Ben. They weren't shooting uh, the skyline. They were mm. shooting London very much with a very contained, um, you know, they had the outside of the hospital. They had the, the small flat. They had the, the, ho- the, hos- the restaurant. They had the Thames, but it was only a specific por- portion of the Thames that they shot. Um, you know, the steps that go down into the Thames. It's just a launching point, literally. Um, yeah. And I, I honestly so, think So you're that, saying that if for, for you, Eastern Promises is an allegorical retelling of uh, making it in Hollywood. Yeah, making it in Hollywood, making it That's in... That's so interesting. Uh, I never thought of it that way. Yeah, and, and the, the thing that I think about is there are certain celebrities who still to this day will not come out even though there's no there's no threat there's no we want people to feel comfortable and and be uh their own person and have their own unique voice um but there's still people who believe it's going to injure their status in yeah. in in hollywood yeah there are, there are um, and some, i'm using the I term mean, holiday, some... hollywood go ahead Oh no! I've just so, you know I mean, there was there was that movie, uh, me him her, and the whole plot of the mm-hmm. movie was all about a, a a celebrity who was trying to keep his homosexuality secret, uh, or or he wanted to come out, and his agents were telling him, "Well, yeah. let's not come out because that'll that'll ruin. You're about to come out with a major blockbuster movie, and you're an action star. Yeah. So if you come out, it'll ruin the the box office." Which, yeah. you know, I mean, and it's that just, was that just was, not uh, the case anymore. Yeah. I mean, that movie was just, I think that came out, what, about five, six years ago? Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah. And I don't the, know. That's the other interesting. The other thing that forced my idea, that idea, was the scene where he was meeting with the Rush, other Russian bosses and they were interviewing him. They honestly, they looked like Hollywood agents. You know, they of course they've looked very Russian. The mustache guy, you know, with the oh, big old so walrusy mustache, so cool yeah. looking. But ultimately, they looked like they were like, okay, we're we're vetting him for the next big thing, and mm-hmm. okay, we got to make sure that he's going to play along and that he's going to make um, the right decisions. So, what do you what do you this, think of this, Jay? What do you think of Todd's theory that that Eastern Promises is really an allegorical retelling of of trying to make it in Hollywood? Um, I think it's interesting. I definitely see the the parallel the parallels in the argument that Todd's trying to make. Yeah. Um, it definitely didn't come to mind when I was watching it, but yeah. I can see it. <laughs> so if we had to choose between, it's a story. It's a layered story about retelling of the Minotaur, or it's a it's Stephen Knight talking about his experience trying to climb the ladder in entertainment. I'd say it's both. I have no problem. I love the Minotaur. I love the classic mythology, but I also feel feel uh, like there's room for for both. Yeah, 
Yeah, and that's that's the thing about allegories, and you know, it's it's about finding patterns that map onto other patterns, and once you mm-hmm. find those parallels, you know, that's why there's you know religious allegory that also overlaps with with uh, political allegory, and other, you know, and then psychological allegory. You know, um, mm-hmm. interesting. I'd never thought of it that way. I'm gonna that you know you're making me see the movie from a different perspective. That's awesome. <laughs> that's great. Because I just recently watched, I rewatched a um, an interview with Stephen Knight, uh, talking about his experience. You know, first he did uh, Dirty Pretty Things with Audrey mm-hmm. Toto, and you know he's since become you know a showrunner, show creator, and then also a director as yep. well. Um, mm-hmm. Really good director. And you're right. A lot of what he talks about is the power dynamics. Like in the in the interview, he was talking about the power dynamics that happen when uh you know having to conform his script to the kind of hollywood three-act structure mm-hmm. which uh that's very interesting and that's what's most personal to him is those power dynamics so yeah, yeah. that's interesting i and i want to rewatch it from a different perspective that's awesome yeah i gotta think about yeah. that hmm. cool um all right. Any any other thoughts, Jay? What do, what do you think? Did you like this movie, Jay? Have you seen it before? This was my first time watching it. It's your um, first time. What'd you think? I liked it. I liked it. <laughs> but I liked it. I liked it. Um, I think a lot of what you were saying, Adam, uh, definitely rang true for me. Just in kind of fell flat. There's not a lot of emotional. Punches mm. that that stuck with me. I think there was some attempts and some things that came close, maybe, but it didn't really go that that full step, at least for me. Uh, yeah, I, I liked it. I thought it was an interesting movie. Viggo Mortensen, of course, did a great performance. Yeah, but it was a little flat. Uh, I would have liked to see them go a little further in some of the things that they were doing. I, I think a lot of the things that you mentioned would fix it hmm. were good ideas uh, another suggestion maybe is to go even further with with the character's uh, homosexuality and how that really affects hmm. the family yeah yeah that would have been interesting yeah because it kind of breezed over it a little bit it's, and it's Vincent Cassell point, is but... such a charismatic character he's such a charismatic yeah. actor and it, like yeah. him up against Viggo Mortensen that was a fantastic chemistry mm-hmm. But yeah, and, and, and they had a couple I, of like, I did almost really intimate scenes too, where they're, you know, almost kissing when they're like touching each other, hugging each other, and, and I feel like that could have been really explored and, and pushed yeah. further. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, the basement I, scene. Yeah, the basement, basement scene. scene. Also, the I do think the cellar scene. The, I do think they had that one horrible scene where he forced him to rape that uh, uh, prostitute. Ugh. Like, mm-hmm. and him just staring at him, like, it's obvious, like, it's yeah. obvious that it, this isn't about something he has to prove, you know, um, which shows, you know, his, his own repression is turning him into a monster as well. But, um, right. but yeah, I, I you're right. It, I do think that could have justified that scene up. better. What was that? Sorry. Again? I think it, I think it would have justified that scene more if it was dialed up, like you just said. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Cool. All right, well, also, that was... Oh, go ahead. I know I mentioned it before, but why has there got to be a racism? 
What? See, that's the, I mean, okay, when you watch Sopranos, right? Uh-huh. Like racism plays into that culture. Um, I, I do um, think like so. I racism. I, I see racism very much as a byproduct of tribalism. Mm-hmm. And tribe and basically tribalism is anything that uh, any token, any signal we can use to identify the people that are like you, that that creates the in group, and uh, and especially mafioso mob stories is basically tribal adaptations, which means you need to have so many protections around identifying the people you can trust, the people who are loyal to you, and everybody else is an enemy. That's the basis of tribalism. If you are not one of us, then you are deadly to me. And because of that, racism is going to be dialed up in in cultures of... I I totally understand that. But the fact that there's not even a black character to... Uh, mm. Like put up against, it's just a small detail from a character's mm. mouth that has absolutely yeah. nothing to do with anything else. I totally understand where you're coming from. And yeah. I think if it was actually part no, of it, the story, then sure. But it wasn't part of the story. It was a piece of dialogue from a character. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you feel like it was kind of flippantly just throwing in racism. Yeah, and I, again, I get where you're coming from, and I I get the. And again, the, nothing, the none of this is condoning tribalism. the racism. I think I don't think the oh, movie yeah, was condoning sure. the racism. I think it was oh, yeah, talking about so how all of these things are acceptable in this culture, and this is why this culture is wrong. And by that, by the culture, I'm not referring to Russian culture. I'm, I'm referring to the mob culture. The mob culture. Yeah. 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 No, I totally agree with that. I just think it's it doesn't do anything. What would What would you do to uh, to change that? Would you completely cut it out? I would cut it out. Uh, he's already been kind of a sexist asshole in that scene anyways yeah. and that yeah. relates it's to true. a character in the movie and in yeah. that scene so that, that works plenty fine for me yeah. um, there's just again for me there's not any need maybe if there was brown or black characters in the movie that could kind of uh, relate to those issues or to play another side of it sure yeah but it doesn't really do anything for me if anything it kind of just takes away from the movie from my perspective i do get where you're where you're coming from as as far as like the the psychology behind um like that mob mentality and tribalism Mm -hmm. but there's other ways what's your take on why they called it eastern promises um I, i mean i just felt it was referring to like russia being eastern mm-hmm. and like that being you know where the mob is from and everything mm-hmm. I, I didn't really dig much deeper than that i mean even with this this show eastern promises the idea that basically the eastern promises are very false the idea that yeah. going to hollywood and becoming an actor and i'm going to i'm going to you know make a movie it is a false promise you believe you're going out there to sing in a restaurant but when in reality you end up um uh washing dishes for 8 years until you go back to iowa and and get married you know yeah, it's so like, we, get we haven't we, ha- we haven't even uh, really touched on this is the movie is about sex trafficking it's about illegal Absolutely. prostitution 
and sex trafficking and 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 uh, slavery. Um, this is Hollywood, which is interesting. You know, if you apply <laughs> that, you know, Eastern Promises. Like I, I agree. I think it was called Eastern Promises because uh, it was the promise of, of what got these young girls to be like, I, you know, I, I can go to London, I can go to all these exotic places, and everything's mm-hmm. going to be great. And they end up slaves and in a nightmare. And this was one of the first movies that I had ever seen about sex trafficking. This was back in 2007. And I'm still pretty ignorant about sex trafficking. And uh, I'm just now learning about horrible stuff that it's actually, you know, malls are like modern American malls are like ways of Ugh. recruiting kids and kidnapping kids. Which, again, it's very dark. But this movie was one of the first exposures I had to the whole concept of, of that. Um, so, yeah, I do think like Eastern Promises is definitely first and foremost about the lies that uh, that uh, sex traffickers are using to entrap and ensnare innocent mm-hmm. children into sex trafficking. Um, and then when you take that to a ne- to the next the allegorical level, yeah, I, I mean it's interesting. I you know I work in the industry. I I, I don't have those kind of experiences, but I'm you know uh, as far as like there, there are definite power dynamics that I work with. Um, but I'm not working on the level that, you know, major celebrities, major directors and famous screenwriters are working on yet. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's, that's interesting. I, I got to think about that interpretation. Huh? Cool. Um, any other thoughts, Jay? No, no, I think we covered, covered pretty much everything. Okay. Cool. Cool. Uh, Todd, any other thoughts? Wrap up. Uh, Vigo ain't cheap. <laughs> Vigo ain't cheap, man. Just telling you. you. Think you're gonna get Vigo cheap? You ain't gonna get him cheap, man. You ain't gonna Just get saying. him cheap. But he's worth every dollar, man. He every penny. So cheap. Good. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Cool. Infinitely uh, watchable. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. I'll wrap it up. All right, so that was our review and discussion and our criticism of Eastern Promises. I still love this movie. It's a fascinating movie. Uh, I I think it's a flawed but fantastic movie. I learned a lot from it. I think Stephen Knight is a fantastic filmmaker, director, writer. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, go watch Eastern Promises. I would love to hear other people's thoughts about it. Um, I learned a lot from both of you guys. I really appreciate that. I'm, I'm never going to watch the movie the same again. You want a vivisection. Yeah, so be sure and subscribe on YouTube. That really helps uh, getting the algorithm out there so more people can watch our show. Um, And we also want to see if this is a viable format for you. We love having the conversation. This is conversations that we have when we're out drinking, having dinner, or just hanging out. Uh, so, uh, and I think Jay and Todd are two of my favorite people to have these discussions with. And I think there's a lot of value from it. I learned from it and I think other writers can be learning from it too. Um, so be sure and subscribe on YouTube, subscribe at storykinetics.com. If you have any writing questions, submit it at the ask hole on storykinetics.com. And uh, you can also go to storykinetics.com because I didn't mention that. Go to storykinetics.com to download the diagrams as well. Um, and we'll, uh, we'll have all the updates and everything. And, uh, once you subscribe, we'll be sending out, um, a newsletter. So you'll always get the updates in the latest episode as well. Thanks for watching. Good luck on the writing and we'll see you next week.